Welcome to another edition of the Ultimate Way in Show. I'm your host, Matt Preet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMA LOTN. This week we're going over UFC Vegas 33, headlined by Sean Strickland and Uriah Hall in a pivotal middleweight belt, probably the biggest fight of Sean Strickland's career. Will he fuck it up? Who probably knows? The guy goes out there and just wants to bang with some of these guys when he probably shouldn't jack Marshman, but he's still able to go out there and get the win. But uh, I think he has a little bit more problems ahead of him here with Uriah Hall. So I can't wait to break down this entire card with you guys. Obviously, we were scheduled to have 15 fights at the beginning of the week. Here we are. Just picking out our scraps. We've got 11 fights left to break down for you guys. But still, should be some decent fights. No name value, but uh, you guys know us. We're gambling degenerates. We're MMA gambling degenerates. So we want to go out there and try to maximize our earning potential every Saturday fucking night. So uh, obviously, I got a great cast of guests with me that I'm going to be introducing in a couple minutes. But I quickly want to remind you guys, tomorrow... The Fight Day Live chat is normally at 1 p.m. Eastern, but it's actually going to be at 4 p.m. Eastern this time around because I'm actually heading up to Z's place, Rockstar Z's place. Me and him are going to be doing a fight companion uh, together for the entire card as well as Bellator in person. Obviously, that's the best way to do it, in my opinion, rather than having five different people fucking with 20 seconds apart in their streams and uh, spoiling it for each other. So uh, tomorrow, 4 p.m. Eastern, Fight Day Live chat, I'll be doing it with, with Z for an hour. And then 6 p.m. Eastern, we're going to be going live on his channel for the fight companion. Once again, we'll go be go we'll be doing the UFC show as well as the Bellator show. So it should be a good time. Make sure you guys swing on by. Um, all right, let me start bringing in these guys, these heavy hitters. You guys were super excited for this uh, for this event, especially with the lineup that I got. We got to, you know, again, not the greatest card, but you got to spice it up by bringing some heavy hitters so that we can at least find some decent betting spots for you guys this week. All right, first of all, foremost, my guy Clint. Clint, what's going on, brother? Not a whole lot, buddy. Always looking forward to doing another fun show with you, talking some fights. Hasn't been that long, like you said, shit card, but we're going to have some fun tonight. Absolutely. I did your show last week, and I was like, you know what? I didn't get enough Clint. Let's get him on the fucking show again this week, and uh, I'm sure the fans and, and viewers will really enjoy it, so I'm always happy to have you on and chop this shit up. Next up, we're going to bring in my guy, John Stargarian, MMA Fox. John, what's going on, brother? What's going on, guys? How about this fucking card, huh? <laughs> but yeah, I'm pumped to get to it, man. Pre, thanks for having me on again. I got some takes, so. Oh, I know you do, which is why I love having you on, dude. There's, there's not many people that have the contrarian takes that my guy John has, but when it works out like it did last week, I'm sure more more than more than enough people are gonna want to listen to what my guy John has to say. And lastly, we're gonna bring in my guy James from Lucrative MMA. James, what's going on, buddy? What's up, boys? Nice to be here. This is a pretty historic day, one of the worst cards of the year. So I'm happy to be here. Hopefully we can make it a little bit more fun though, right? So yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's why I wanted to, to make sure that we had a star-studded crew for this. So at least people would tune in and, and listen to what we got to say. And I'm sure all of us have some spots on here that we feel pretty good about and some other spots that we're probably just like, eh, that's just, we got to love it. 10 other fights that we can talk about. So, um, all right, let's not waste too much more time. Let's just get into this goddamn card. First and foremost, we got uh, Orion, uh, Orion Kosi going up against Philip Rowe. Philip Rowe obviously missing weight this morning. One of the few guys that did. At least he made it to the scale, but he did uh, miss weight by two and a half pounds. Uh, didn't look the greatest on the scales, but I don't think it's going to be to the point that it's actually going to uh, hinder his performance here. I do think that he'll still go out there and still have his facilities about him. Um, I, I think his range striking here is going to be a little bit difficult for Kosi to get used to. Uh, Kosi, obviously the brother of Luis Kosi, who uh, shit the bed uh, back in November as a very significant uh, favorite against uh, Sasha Palatnikov. But the difference between here, between the Kosi brothers, I feel that Orion actually has more experience going deeper into fights, whereas Luis was just going out there and absolutely stifling guys. With that said, 
even when Orion goes deeper into fights, it gets a little shady outside of that Matt Dixon fight, even though it seemed like Matt Dixon was the one huffing and puffing a little bit more. Uh, but I do think he could run into some troubles here with Phil, uh, Phil Rowe. I think if Phil Rowe keeps his distance, uh, lands those one-twos down the middle, kind of keeps this fight at range. You guys even saw it at the uh, stare-downs this morning. Uh, very huge uh, height discrepancy in this spot. And I think that Philip Rowe should do a decent enough job in terms of keeping Orion Kosi on the outside kind of pick him apart. Uh, maybe get a late finish. I do think that Orion does have some gas tank issues. There's so many red flags in terms of, you know, watching his regional tape going up against bums and he's pulling guillotine and dropping to his back on certain spots and it's not a good look at all. Uh, I have ha I have said in the past that I do think that uh, Roe is somewhat green in his own right, but I do think that he has the better skills here to actually pull off the victory, especially as an underdog. And even though he missed weight, I, th I still think that he has a good shot to go out there and get the finish or, or get the win here. Possibly third round spot. I've definitely thrown it out there as the round three prop is kind of live in this spot, I believe. But I do think that he's going to end up winning this fight by, by decision. Probably one of my favorite dog spots on the card, to be honest. Uh, although I did make my dog when I play uh, a plus money total that I'll talk about later on this card if it wasn't for that i'd probably have played row as my dog of the night play for this card so i do like row uh and row by decision but potentially round three as well clint i know you got a pretty big play here on my guy phil row so break it down for us what do you see and why do you like it so much man this is just kind of turned into one of my favorite spots on the entire card my whole night's gonna hinge on the first fight of the night man so first off when i looked at this thing early on in the week they had philip Rowe as a plus 165, plus 170 underdog. And after I did my tape, I looked it over. I was like, bro, what are you doing? I was like, that's just a ridiculous price tag for this fight. So I loaded up two units on Phil Rowe at plus 165 at that number. And, man, I think the weigh-ins has a whole lot to do with this. But I tossed another two on him at plus 130 because I just still am starting to think that it's not enough. This should be a straight pick em. Otherwise, Phil Rowe should probably even be the favorite. We saw what happened with Orion Koski's brother the last time he stepped into the cage. You know, he shit the bed as a gigantic favorite. They're doing the same thing here with Orion. He's a he's a farm strength guy. You know what I mean? He's got a big left hand. He's a grinder. He's going to look to get in there and take you down. And then he just breaks guys over the course of 15 minutes. I don't think you can do that to Phil Rowe, man. Phil Rowe is two freaking weight classes larger than this man. He's got a literal nine-inch reach advantage, which is unheard of. And this guy trains with guys like Rodolfo Vieira, Jared Gooden, Gerald Mearshart, Glover. Like, you're not going to outgrind this man when you've got a size disadvantage against him. I think Philip Rowe's going to be able to defend the takedowns. If he can't defend them, get up. If he's on his back, he's going to have sweeps. You know, big, tall, long, strong guys like that, they can do shit on the ground that – Short guys just can't quite understand, so I think he's got opportunities to tie up Koski. And then on the feet, man, maybe their striking is comparable, but that nine-inch reach I think is going to win the day. So I think we got a pick em shot, or maybe Rowe should even be considered the favorite. So after seeing him missed weight, this, in my opinion, is one of those good weight misses because he's too big for 170. He's not making it all the way down to 170 flat. He's getting a couple of extra pounds allowance. He's going to be way bigger come fight night. I think that size makes a difference. I load it up. I'm on Phil Rowe. John, uh, when when we get prospects like these that are pretty like obviously groomed by the the local promotions that they're with, it was just so unnerving for me to like listen to the commentary that uh, whenever you're watching these cozy fights, because these guys are all over these guys, not even giving them uh, giving their opponent a bit of shine. They're just all over Kosi and Orion, but uh, we definitely see them get exposed once they come to the UFC. Do you think that Orion <laughs> will fit uh, the bill of his uh, brother, who obviously fell flat on his face in his debut, or do you think that Phil Rowe is aside here as well? 
Well, you know I love my Contender Series fades, first and <laughs> foremost. <laughs> but, like, it's kind of funny because when Phil Rowe came into the UFC, I was extremely anti-Phil Rowe. I didn't think he really showed a whole lot when he fought on Contender Series against Leon Shabazian. You know, not his regional tape, not very impressive. He doesn't manage distance particularly well for a guy that big. But to be honest, and, you know, I think he's pretty fragile. But to be honest, he actually kind of impressed me against Gabe Green because, like, while obviously Green messed up his leg pretty badly and ended up winning that fight, it was a close decision. And I kind of thought going into that, Green was just going to be able to bite the mouthpiece, go forward and do whatever he wanted to him. And he actually showed a competency in particular in the striking that I just hadn't seen from him before. Like, obviously, he's a very long guy, and we knew he was a pretty decent submission grappler. But honestly, his wrestling looked pretty solid in that spot as well. And so it's funny because I went from being pretty anti-row to being kind of, you know, intrigued by him after that fight. And on the other hand, I had recalled pre-tape here, and, you know, this is really the real credence to tape more than anything else, being somewhat impressed with Orion Kosi off of his contender series fight. Um, and then going back and watching it and being like, what was I, was I just impressed? Cause I bet him plus two twenty there. <laughs> like I, I don't really look, obviously the guy hits very hard. Um, well, I should say he's knocked out a bunch of guys regionally. He hits hard. You know, he's tough. He's obviously got a lot of heart. He's a reasonable defensive grappler, but I don't see a whole lot that he does very well. You know, he hits hard and he's tough, but he's not very tactical striking wise. His output's pretty low. You know, Dixon's a wrestler, really, not a striker. And he was lighting him up on the feet, like without much issue. And so I was looking at him like, well, does he close distance well? It's like, not really. He kind of comes up short with a lot of his shots, doesn't really follow through or blitz too close distance. And so, like, I look at this fight, it's like, I have major concerns about Rowe's durability. Like, look, his leg got beaten up bad by Green in that fight. You know, that's a concern. I still think someone that gets inside is going to be able to hurt him bad just because I don't think his head movement, if you can get inside the reach, is the best. But at the end of the day, like, skill for skill, I think Rowe's better pretty much everywhere here. I think he's the cleaner boxer. I think his output's probably going to be a bit more reliable. I honestly think he's probably the better wrestler. Like, I'm not saying Kosi can't hit takedowns, but look, yeah, I know he finished Matt Dixon on the map, but Dixon was completely gassed out. Like, that's not a particularly meaningful sequence for me, after, especially after he got out-wrestled for pretty much that entire fight. And, like, I'm not saying I'm super confident in Rowe. Look, like I said, he's got a ton of issues there ability-wise. But I do think, you know, when you're dealing with somebody who, at least to me, I think is far more skilled – it's like the worst I could price him, even with that those fragility issues, is like 50, 55%. So, like, I picked up that plus 170 for a couple units. Look, Kosi's very live for a finish, but I do think if this goes the full way, you know, Rose going to probably win the minutes here fairly easily. I love that you earlier you said that you were anti roll before. So, is it safe to say that you're pro? <laughs> No, no, okay. I, I swung for the fences. <laughs> I swung for the fences. God damn it, James. Uh, are you going to make this a unanimous decision here on the underdog? Do you like Philip Rowe in this spot against Ryan Kosi? I think there's value on Rowe. I'll say that. So if I was able to do the tape, or if I did the tape when it was at plus one seventy, plus one sixty, like the boys did, I would also be on Rowe. It would be unanimous, right? But when I did the tape, I saw plus one thirty. So it was real recent. Like I think I watched this fight yesterday. A little bit behind this week because of better tour and stuff. So, look, man, I, I agree with a lot of what John said, to be honest, and Clint as well. Um, I was also not very high on Roe when he came in and fought Gabriel Green. I had a bet on Gabriel Green in that fight, 
and I also took the under in that fight. I think the thing about that fight, though, is that, look, Roe definitely shocked me, surprised me, looked a lot better than I thought he would. But I also thought and still think Gabe Green could have got him out of there if he wasn't so fucking stupid. Right. There was a couple of times in that fight where it looked like Gabe Green had him on skates and then I he kicked him in the balls or I think he punched him in the balls. The ref stopped yeah. it. That gave Roe a lot of time to recover. Who knows what would have ha happened if that didn't happen? I don't like to play that game, what would have happened if, but that is still a factor, right? It did look like Roe was quite hurt. And then there was another point where Roe's leg was completely done. Uh, Gabriel Green initiates grappling, right? If he doesn't initiate grappling, steps back, hits the calf kicks, maybe he gets Phil Roe out of there, right? So, um, look, he definitely impressed me, but I also thought that there was a couple of opportunities he was could be stopped there in, in, in a few different ways, right? Punches and then the calf kicks. Um, when it breaks down to this fight, I feel like, yeah, there's value on Roe. I think it's like a 50-50 fight, but I do think Roe is very vulnerable, like John was saying. I can see Kos Koski just landing one shot after getting his face jabbed off for a couple of minutes, and then Roe kind of just crumbling to the ground. Kosi gets on top. He either finishes him or steals the round. So I would be on Roe if the price was better. And then at this price, I would still be on row if I hadn't seen that much vulnerability in his game, you know? Like, he can be winning eight, nine minutes, and then I feel like, you know, we haven't seen it that much, but I feel like he's the type of fighter that can just fucking lose it after winning 10 minutes in a row, right? So I don't really like to bet on them fighters where I'm going to be worrying the whole 15 minutes, but plus 170, definitely a good bet, definitely decide. And the line movement shows it because it's definitely a lot closer to where the line is now is where I line it. So, yeah, man. I mean, final prediction, I say it's a 50-50 fight, so I'm not saying anyone's going to win, but definitely value on, on the row side for sure. John, you had something to add, brother? No, no, no. I, I'm sorry. Okay. It looked like you are gesturing. Like, hey, yeah, I, got some <laughs> I was thinking here. about it, but then Luke just addressed it. So I was like, yeah, I'm Perfect. not going to say anything else. <laughs> yeah, no, James, I'm definitely with you. I, I, I believe I was on the under two and a half in that fight as well. And it was so frustrating to see so many openings for finishes and it just doesn't transpire as well. So that was definitely very, uh, uh, you know, again, a big piss off there. But uh, yeah, it looks like everybody's on roll for the most part on this panel uh, and for good reason. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. A fight that was originally scheduled for uh, May, I believe it was, and Ryan Benoit had a horrible weight cut, probably one of the worst scenes I've ever seen at a weigh-in, uh, but looks like he was much better, in much better shape this week, uh, get, making the scales, making 126 pounds, and he's going up here against Saruk Adashev. In terms of the line, uh, we got minus 145 for, or sorry, we got... Um, Oh, Jesus. Uh, best fight odds completely flipped the odds here. There we go. Minus 120 for Ryan Benoit, plus 100-ish for Zaruk Adashev. Clint, I'm actually going to let you uh, kick this one off for us, brother. Who do you got between uh, these flyweights? All right. Shout out to my guy, uh, Exonus. Who you got? <laughs> <laughs> so what we've got here, man, is a very, very questionable fight. And it sucks because... All the action we've lost on this card, all the fights pulling out and all the cancellations, they're making me want to bet this one because it's what's left on the damn slate. Uh, we got a short favorite in Ryan Benoit, and I think that that's appropriate, man. Both these guys are essentially 500 fighters. Benoit's got a lot more experience in MMA. We know Zaruk Adashev is actually a pretty solid kickboxer. He surprised a lot of people going 15 minutes with Sumajiri last fight out. If you don't mix up the game... 
This guy can stand with just about anybody. He is slick on the feet, but he's a little undersized, and he doesn't have his wits about him when it comes to the ground game. And that's where Ryan Benoit is actually a guy who's been messed up by people grappling with him in his UFC career. I think he can flip the script. He's a BJJ brown belt. He's been working hard to patch that game up. He's been trying to close that gap, and now he finally is the better wrestler of the two. I think he can take this guy down. I, I think the fact that Ryan Benoit is a much more well-rounded mixed martial artist with a higher level of experience has him being a deserving favorite. And then on top of that, this is a Southpaw versus Orthodox style fight, and that's going to open up the left-hand side of Ryan Benoit. That's where all his power comes from. He's got a big left hand, and he throws these bombing left body kicks. We've seen Zarukadashev hurt. We've seen him knocked out in two of his losses already. I mean... I think Ryan Benoit stands a chance to finish this fight on the feet, on the ground. He could just grind this guy out. He's the bigger of the two men. It makes sense. I, I think it's Zaruk Arashev. I'm, I'm sorry, not Zaruk. It's Ryan Benoit. It's favored or pass in this type of a situation. Uh, shout out to Sweet D here. Benoit sub at plus 1800 is not too bad of a spot considering the grappling advantage he should have in this fight. Uh, John, do you carry the same sentiments as Clint? Or do you I was going to shout out better... Sweet D as well there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is a pretty nice spot. Um, actually... While you introduce this fight, I have best fight odds up here, and I literally just went on Bet365 and bet Ryan Benoit for oh, two wow. units. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess... Oh, was that convincing, I'm, huh? <laughs> I, I am not... I, I'm sorry, John, kind of John let me just interject real, real quick here. According to best fight odds, Benoit is plus 650 via sub at certain spots, and the best I'm seeing is plus 1,400 at, at a couple spots. So maybe it's that book specifically that Sweet D got plus 1,800. Sorry, continue. Yeah, so, I mean, I've been just kind of waiting all week for the line and the weigh-in. Like, I'm not a guy who really worries too much about weigh-ins, but obviously after what happened to Benoit on the scale the last time his fight was booked, you know, that is a bit of, cons of a concern because I had a bet on him then too, and fortunately he didn't make the walk the next day because uh, he looked awful. But honestly, I guess my view is if you're going to beat Ryan Benoit, historically there's two archetypes that really beat him. They're guys that wrestle very aggressively offensively, and he's actually cleaned up that part of his game a decent amount. And then you have like real volume strikers. Like you look at his fight, how he lost to Tim Elliott. It was kind of just Elliott kind of just spamming volume at him. Um, Adashev doesn't really check either of those boxes. And that's before like kind of you even get into the other intangible stuff. Like, look, the guy's got six fights. You know, he had four fights coming into the UFC, clearly wasn't ready, got nuked. He got a fight against Sue Madurji that he clearly wasn't ready for. You know, he's just kind of – he's swimming in the deep end when he probably needs 10 to 15 fights to even get consideration for this promotion. It just so happened that he came into the promotion during COVID times when epic four or five fights were getting canceled every single week. And, like, I look at him skill-wise – and, you know, I see people making the case for him being, you know, an excellent striker because he has a glory background. But, like, I don't see it. Like, I get it. You know, there are guys like Israel Adesanya who were elite kickboxers before becoming elite MMA strikers. But striking both in Muay Thai and in professional kickboxing is very, very different from striking in MMA. Just, you know, the four-ounce gloves just provide, you know, a totally different game, especially defensively. And you see that with Adashev, you know. He's not defensively sound at all. Um, you know, he doesn't really have any way to maintain distance on the outside. Everything is blitz-oriented. And when you look at, like, on minutes, you know, classically, you know, the biggest issue in Benoit's game has been his low volume. Adashev against Mudurji, who gave him a 15-minute striking match, was horribly low volume in that fight as well. And, like, I'm not necessarily comparing Benoit's striking to Mudurji, but, you know, 
we saw him in a 15-minute kickboxing match, and it didn't look like he was on this level, even if you want to throw out the Tyson Nam fight. And so, yeah, I guess my view is I don't think Adashev, even if Benoit decides just entirely to not wrestle him, I don't think he's going to offer Benoit much that he hasn't seen in the past. Uh, I think pretty much every guy Benoit's beaten should would be a pretty solid favorite over Adashev in this spot. Uh, and obviously the guys who have beaten Benoit mostly I think would be huge favorites over Adashev. Uh, yeah, I mean, if he beats Benoit, okay, but – he has so much more experience. And I just think so much more tools that work for MMA than Adashi has. James, it's not often that you hear people talking up Ryan Benoit to this level, but that's <laughs> definitely, yeah, that, not just John, but Clint as well. But uh, that definitely tells you and lets you know what kind of matchup we got ahead of us here. Uh, do you see the fight the same way that these guys do? Or do you think that Adashi is a little bit more live than they're making it seem? I'm going to talk him up some more, man, because this fight <laughs> is its such a winnable fight for him. You know, if you go back and look who he's fought, and you say people don't talk him up, but I've been talking him up for a while. I mean, at least his last fight as well, because I had a bet on him against Tim Elliott. And look, if you go look back and look at MMA decisions, I think just over half of the people scored it for Benoit, half of the people scored it for Elliott. It was a tough fight, right? Elliott's a great fighter. I mean, he's still a good fighter in that division. We see him blow away, uh, I think it was Espinosa in his last fight. So he's still competing at that level. Ryan Benoit almost tapped out Tim Elliott in that fight. If Tim Elliott wasn't Tim Elliott, he probably would have tapped out. He had him in a deep, deep, I believe it was a knee bar, some sort of leg lock. You see Tim Elliott screaming out in anger and he still doesn't tap. You know, if that's Adeshev, a kickboxer, and Ryan Benoit latches onto his leg, the guy's tapping out. You know what I mean? Or he's losing his leg. He's not able to, to get away from it like he did with Tim Elliott. Now, I don't think the fight is going to be um, contested in the grappling as much as the last fight. Of course, Tim Elliott is a grappler. He's going to force that. I do agree with Clint that if Benoit is smart, he will go for the takedowns here. I can't trust him to go for the takedowns. Um, you, you, uh, I just cut off. You guys got me? Yep. Yeah, I can't trust him to go for the takedowns, but at least that's something in our back pocket, right? It's an MMA fight, so they're going to be striking. If the fighters do fall into the clinch, you know, if if someone does get dropped, the fight will go to the grappling. And then I believe we've got a huge edge there. And when I say we, I mean all of us because we've all got a bet on him. So I think, like, he's kind of got Adeshev covered everywhere. I agree with John as well. Like, when you talk about the striking, there's not many fighters that come over from kickboxing and then do really, really well in MMA, man. I mean... You see it sometimes, but there's also, like, for, for as many times as you see it, you see it go completely the other way. You know, Gokan Saki, one of the best um, kickboxers of all time, gets knocked the fuck out by Khalil Roundtree of it, of, of, you know, on the feet. Um, and there's loads of other examples of that. I mean, Adeshev looks decent in glory, I guess, but comes over to this game, gets knocked out by Nam, hurt by Madaji. Yeah, he hurt Madaji as well, but... I just think Ryan Benoit, like the guy's going to split decisions with Brandon Moreno a long time ago now, beating Sergio Pettis a long time ago now. But but Benoit is only 31 years old, right? Adeshev is 29 years old. It's not like there's a huge age gap. It's not like Adeshev's this new, young, up-and-coming guy and then Ryan Benoit's on his way out. They're fairly the same age. Ryan Benoit just has way more experience. Ryan Benoit looked good in his last fight. I mean, I don't really see how Ryan Benoit isn't a bigger favorite than he is. I don't see how he's not closer to that minus 200 range. I don't really see too many paths for Adeshev other than keeping it on the feet and just outstriking him, which I, I don't see it happening, man. I mean, look, it could prove me wrong, but I'm all over Ryan Benoit here. He's actually my biggest bet on the card, on, on a shit card. Um, he is my biggest bet on the card. So, yeah. Interesting, interesting. I guess uh, I'm going to add on. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, this is one of those fights that I just I don't I don't feel like I can get a proper read on it personally. Like I feel as though that Adeshev could make it a little bit more competitive than uh, some of the takes that I'm seeing out there. Uh, the issue though is I do feel like the the experience that Benoit has could be the uh, difference maker. Here. However, his fight IQ is a little bit sketchy, uh, sketchy at times as well. But you gotta be you know a blind mice to not know that you just you know if you implement some sort of grappling technique or or grappling approach in this fight, you're gonna have a massive advantage. Uh, in the striking realm, again, both guys somewhat low IQ. Even Arashev, when he was uh, uh, in that glory kickboxing scene, he wasn't like a crazy knockout artist. He was more so just a point fighter kind of guy, just trying to find his openings and land some good shots. And I think it could translate possibly into this fight. This is the first fight that he's having in the UFC where the guy doesn't completely tower over him, right? Tyson M is a pretty big 125er with some huge bombs in his hands. So I'm going to kind of write that, that fight off. Uh, Sumadarji, very unorthodox striker, long, lanky, a little bit harder for Adashev to uh, close the distance and actually get his strikes off. If I'm not mistaken, it was 50 to 28 in terms of strikes in favor of Mudarji in that fight. Now he has a guy like Benoit in front of him who he could possibly showcase his striking a little bit better with. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't have to worry about all this range to cover. And uh, I will say Benoit does have some pretty good power in his hands and, and his kicks, as he obviously showed when he knocked out Sergio Pettis in that comeback fight. But I do think that Adashev could potentially show some uh, some wrinkles in his game here where he goes out there and you know puts on a decent striking performance. I will say I like the fact that he's actually training out of Nick Cadone's gym as well, which is, in my opinion, one of the more underrated gyms. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's actually out by uh, John as well over there in New Jersey. But definitely one of those uh lower level not lower level but not talked about gyms that will definitely uh give Adeshev some solid uh work right um if I'm not mistaken Frankie Edgar goes by there a couple times Nicotone obviously a very high level coach in my opinion as well too so he could definitely be working his overall game and I, I you gotta believe that he wants to shore up his grappling game as best as he can and I could think of worse places that he can go if he wants to shore it up uh than Cotone's gym over there so I think we could see uh Adeshev that you know that that surprises some people I am going to take him to to win this fight via decision not the biggest level of confidence either so I don't hate the fact that you guys actually feel confident enough in terms of taking the shot on but Annoyed here, um, but in terms of uh, Adashev, yeah, I'm going to take him by decision. And uh, it, it, the last thing I'll say about it, kind of reminds me of Jin Yu Fry against Gloria DePaul. We're just, you know, the, the Jin Yu Fry just not having any success in the UFC. Everybody's writing her off, just not saying that she she even deserves to be in the UFC. And then she goes out there and pulls off uh, a, a victory, albeit different stylistic matchups, different vari variables that we're working with in the spot. So uh, I, I'm just you know, picking at straws at this point in time in terms of backing Adeshev in this spot. But again, even in my lottery parlays and degenerate parlays, I'm keeping this fight the fuck off of it. I want nothing to do with this on my side because I don't have uber confidence, which you guys seem to have on, on Benoit in this side. So I'll be completely okay with being wrong in this spot. James, go ahead and then I'll let Clint go after that. I, I will just say one thing, right? Because, uh, you know, when you said uber confidence, maybe I come across like really, really confident in Ryan Benoit because I said he's my biggest bet on the card. He's my biggest bet on the card because I have fuck all bets on this card, right? <laughs> I'm not super confident in Ryan Benoit here. So don't go putting all your money on him, your whole bankroll, right? I just think, you know, it's he, he, a decent fight for him to win. Put your whole bankroll on him. Clay, <laughs> 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 what were you going to say, brother? I was just going to say, I have yet to bet this fight. So that's, I, you know, we're talking about every single fight. We're breaking down every single fight. I'll tell you when I made a bet, when I didn't make a bet. This is the read for this one. I do think Ryan Benoit wins, but I wasn't even confident enough in him to bet him. There were better spots on this shit card until we had those pulled away from me. So now I'm a being a degenerate here, and I'm like, I got some free units lying around 
know, maybe I'll bet Ryan Benoit. So same thing is lucrative, man. Just don't think I'm oozing confidence on Ryan Benoit because to this point, I don't even have money on him yet. <laughs> Do the right thing, Clint. I will. I will. Draw the devil on your fucking left side. I, I will have money on him by fight time after this breakdown, though. Yeah. Speaking of a fight that you probably don't want to have money on, we're going to move on to Ashley Yoder against Jin Yu Fry in this spot. And, you know, I say that with a, a little tongue in cheek humor there. Uh, you know, very tough fight to break down, in my opinion. In terms of odds, uh, we're looking at uh, minus. Uh, minus 140 for Yoder, who literally was the last one on the scale and almost didn't even look like she was going to make weight, but she did. She seemed relieved, obviously, to hit that mark. And then in, t in terms of uh, the, the return here, we got plus 120 on Jin Yu Fry. Uh, James, I'm actually going to let you kick this one off, brother. How do you feel about this uh, scrap between these two women? Yeah, man. This, this was hard to sit through tape for. This was a bit of a struggle, man, but I got it done. And I came away thinking that like before, when I saw the line, I saw a plus number next to Jin Yu Frey. I'm like, oh, sweet. We're getting an underdog who's fighting Ashley Yoda. You know, like maybe this might be a spot I want to target. I come away thinking that the line is probably accurate. Uh, Yoda probably should be a slight favorite here. The way I see this fight breaking down stylistically is that Yoda is probably going to have no issue walking forward on Frey because Frey doesn't really hit hard. She's kind of straight hand reliant she doesn't you know she's got a couple of leg kicks and she throws a straight hand and she's pretty powerful but obviously she's fighting upper division yoda is a tough chick we saw her take the kitchen sink off angela hill and she never got dropped once she did look like she potentially might get stopped but she never got dropped she is a tough chick she's a scrappy girl i don't think Frey's gonna be like pounding on her so hard that she's not gonna be able to close distance which means that she will close distance, right? Which is what she wants to do. Spider monkey, grab a hold of you, trap you in a web or whatnot. So I think when she does close distance on Frey, the much, much smaller lady, I think she's going to be able to wrap her up some, she might not get a, a, a average or conventional takedown, but the grappling probably will ensue by some tussle up against the cage, something like that. And then I believe Yoda will probably be able to get the better of the grappling. I think the line is accurate. So, like, I think Yoda's, like, minus 150 now. Maybe I'd line her more like a minus 125. This fight's a bit of a shit show. I will say that I was looking at different ways to play it. The only way I can see any value on this is um, maybe if you want to take Yoda by sub. You know, it's, like, plus 700 or something. And I think the grappling's going to be there quite a bit. And, obviously, Jin Frey. She doesn't have the best fight IQ from what I can see. In that Kay Hansen fight, she was a little bit um, I don't know, she didn't do she didn't she didn't do the best in the grappling, right? Uh, especially when she was on bottom. So Yoda does like to hump for the sub. She's got them long limbs. She maybe could get a sub, but I mean I'm literally just clutching at straws right now, right? I don't I don't think there's much value to be had on this fight. Um I'm gonna take Yoda for the scrappy, boring win because she's able to just nullify a phrase game and just crash into the pocket and just win but yeah i'm not confident i uh, i'm not confident at all on what's going to happen in this one I feel as though we can like listen to 10, 15 different MMA podcasts and everybody's going to have somewhat of a different breakdown of the swipe considering it could go any fucking way, right? Like both women could win in the striking realm. Both women could potentially win in the grappling realm. Yoda, obviously uh, uh, an accredited BJJ black belt, but you don't really see it super threatening. Like she's able to hit reversals mm -hmm. and get some top control at times, but she gets reversed herself too. Like she doesn't really do that great of a job in terms of maintaining that top control, which gives me some pause here. Now, obviously she's going to be the bigger woman in this spot 
spot. I'm not entirely sure if she'll actually be the stronger woman in this spot. Although, you know, like she is the, the bigger one in terms of height and reach, that won't always translate in terms of the strength. Jin Yu Fry, everybody already knows the narrative out there. She's the former Adam weight champion from Invicta, 105 pounder, forced to move up to 115 pounds to try to make a. a to, just to compete in the UFC, uh, you know, it's just it's still a travesty, in my opinion, that they don't have a 105 pound division inside the UFC. I think that Jin Fry would be much better suited there, just as other fighters such as Loma look with me. But in in terms of this matchup, if she's not able to get past a girl like Ashley Yoder, I don't think she has much longevity at all inside the UFC. Right, it, the, getting that win over Gloria DePaula was great and all, but like you, Ashley Yoder is one of the like the the gatekeeper gatekeepers of gatekeepers right like she for for that division specifically if she's not able to get past a girl like her it's very very alarming i do think though i think that we'll see fry actually close distance land some decent shots maybe mix in some clinch and and some groundwork i don't think she'll like blow out ashley yoder in those sequences but i do think that her hard-nosed you know kind of forward movement and kind of just closing the distance not really respecting the punching power or the striking at all of yoder is going to be a a concern as well uh i will say this it's not often you see ashley yoder well Actually, then again, it's not often that you see somebody like the level of Lavinia Souza in terms of her striking going out there and, you know, having a lot of success in terms of landing on a girl like Ashley Yoder who had that same type of reach and height advantage that she's going to have in this spot. So uh, I don't mind Fry, you know, as the underdog spot. I don't mind taking a little bit of a poke at her. But just like the Arashev fight for me, this this is the two passes of the week for me. I, I want no action in either of these because it could go either way. If you want to lock up the night, it's the over two and a half probably, right? I'd be very surprised if we do see a finish. I know James was talking about the potential sub opportunity here. It's possibly there, but it, I can't remember the last time we've actually seen Yoder, you know, get super, super close to actually getting a finish, right? That's the that's the interesting part here. I know Jin Fry got subbed by Kay Hansen in her first UFC fight, so that's a little bit of a concern. But, you know, Yoder, Yoder struggles to truly get those submission opportunities, and I th I'll be surprised if she actually gets one here against Jin Fry. My pick's going to be Fry by decision. If you are looking to bet this fight, I think taking either woman by points is the best way to maximize your, your profitability in this fight. But... You might have to call 1-800-GAMBLER if you fucking bet this fight at all. But I am going to be on the, the Jin Fry side here. No bet from my end. Uh, Clint, you, you going to pull out the degenerate in yourself and you got some money on this fight? Or or how do you see this fight going down? Oh, shit. Oh, shit. What is he doing? Oh, God. He's got the tinfoil hat on. I got the tinfoil hat. No. So I, I have a, uh, a strange take on this one. I'm kind of with you, Locke, and... It's weird because the close. I, I swore to myself I was not going to bet this fight, but the closer <laughs> that we get to fight time, the more confident I get in Jin Yu Frey, and I don't know why that is. There should be absolutely no confidence here on either of these fighters, and I understand that in my soul. But for some reason, I'm also just going, man. So the first big narrative that you hear from everybody is Ashley Yoder is so much bigger. Jin Yu Frey was an atom weight, man. She's small for the weight class. And then you watch them at the weigh-ins. Yoder wasn't that much bigger than Jin Yu Frey. And on top of that, Jin Yu Frey is about twice as thick as Ashley Yoder is. There's not going to be a size issue in this fight. Ashley Yoder, she's got the height and reach advantage, but can she stop anybody from closing range? No. No, she can't. Does she stop takedowns? No, she doesn't do that either. And you know what Jin Yu Frey does? 
She bodies people. She pushes them against the cage. She takes them down. She lays on top of them. Ashley Yoder has no problem accepting bottom position and trying to play jujitsu off her back, even though she has yet to submit anybody in the UFC. She falls off her opponents when she gets back control. She has bad positional awareness, and she'll lay on her back and look for triangles the whole fight. Man, I absolutely think that Jin Yu Frey is going to win this fight by decision because Ashley Yoder is going to give it to her. And she's the underdog. It just doesn't make sense to me, man. I, I think that Jin Yu Frey is going to win this thing. But like I said, it's sketchy. It's questionable. For all the reasons that everyone else has already laid out, you probably shouldn't be confident at all in this fight. And Ashley Oder has a chance to win this one. Um, she is the favorite. It makes sense. So I I'm probably not going to bet it. It'll go in one of my Hail Mary parlays. But yeah, I think Jin Yu Frey is the side here if you're going to do anything with it. Nothing makes me happier, and I'm guilty of this too, is when a predictor or a capper or whoever the hell starts their breakdown by saying, I said I wasn't going to bet this fight, but <laughs> I fucking love that because I do the same thing as well. John, how do you feel about this fight? Again, it's pretty close in my opinion. Well, uh, How do you think it goes down? I am very confident, and that confidence is that the line is right and that there's no value on either side here. Uh, <clears throat> I'll be honest. I'm pretty. I'm kind of bummed about it because like, when this fight got announced, it was one that I was like, okay, Fry is coming off a win where literally everybody and their mother, Beck Gloria De Paula, and Yoder's coming off a loss where she looked really bad. Like, decent chance, you know, we'll Fry. get you. Me too. <laughs> but, but most people were on Gloria De Paula. <laughs> but I, I was like, there's all, I was like, there's Yoder's definitely going to be a dog. Unfortunately, she's not. And like, I don't know, it's kind of funny. I feel kind of similar to this fight that I do about Adeshev and Benoit. The difference is, and this is a huge difference that I think a lot of people don't give enough credence to when breaking down a fight, is you look at Adeshev Benoit, and I think it's kind of a similar dynamic to what minutes will look like in this fight, except Benoit's got pretty substantial finishing upside, you know, in addition to an ability to win minutes, whereas Yoder has, she could catch her in a sub, but she doesn't really have any knockout upside at all here unless it's some kind of a positional KO. And so like, that's a huge, it's a huge thing having somebody that you think is going to edge minutes, but also has a lot of ability to finish in a closely lined fight and somebody who you think is going to edge minutes, but probably can't finish. So I, I just don't see the value on Yoder, but I do think like, again, almost the same dynamic, you know, Yoder's fought much better competition. You know, it reminds me to some extent when she was a dog against Miranda Granger, like six months ago, eight months ago, whenever it was, it just like, you know, people kind of like, oh, you know, Miranda Granger, she's like a, a hot, sexy prospect here. You know, we should probably better, even though Yoder's got a lot more fights and a lot more experience. And Yoder won that fight fairly easily. I kind of feel similarly here. She's a longer fighter. She's a bit taller. Her output's a bit better than Frey. Like, I think Frey is pretty skilled, but the reality is she doesn't do a whole lot. Like, even looking at the DePaula fight, round two of that, you know, she dominates her on the mat in round one after landing one takedown. Round two, she basically goes back to doing Jimmy Fry things and just kind of loses a tepid striking round there. And we see that every time she's on the feet. Like, I think technically she's fine standing, but she's always getting outworked by her opponents. And it's like, you can be better than your opponents, but if you're getting outstruck two to one, it doesn't really matter. You're going to lose the round on the cards. And so I think Yoder should basically have the advantages everywhere. Even if she gets taken down, I don't – like Yoder scrambles pretty well. I'd be a little surprised if she just gets held on her back for like four minutes like DePaula did. So I think Yoder wins the fight. But like I said, I think the line's about right. That 55 60% rate for Yoder, I think that's accurate. Yeah, it's, again, very, very tough fight to break down and truly be 
confident on either side of the spot. It could go either freaking way. All right, let's move on to the next fight. Another fight, very closely lined, but I'm very intrigued to hear everybody's thoughts on it. We got Donnie Chavez, plus 100, minus 120 is the return on Kai Kamaka. Both guys looked in decent shape. Kai Kamaka obviously taking this fight on short notice. I believe he is stepping in for Duho Choi. That fight would have been absolutely bonkers if Choi actually made the walk. But here we are with Kai Kamaka, who equally does provide some very entertaining fights as well. Uh, I do lean on the Danny Chavez side in this fight. I do think that he could potentially uh, land the more significant strikes. I love his calf-kicking approach, which is something that MMA Masters goes out there and pretty much tries to instill into all of their fighters. You know I mean, that's that's an approach that definitely like opens up the rest of their game. Uh, I felt as though, you know... Um, uh, I felt as though Kamaka initially when he came into the UFC, that that Tony Kelly fight, absolutely crazy. I thought he had some pretty solid uh, potential, but then I saw, you know, his knack for sometimes slowing down later in fights. It's a little bit of a concern, especially when you're dealing with guys that are going to be able to keep up that pace from minute one to minute 15. Uh, Danny Chavez, I'm still, I feel like the jury is still out in regards to his cardio, but I feel as though he's at least a little bit more uh, efficient in terms of how he goes out there and takes his striking approach. You know, again, starts off with light kicks, starts mixing it in the hands. I do think he's left to potentially go out there and land some takedowns in this fight as well and potentially win some rounds. Uh, Kai Kamaka seems like a decent striker, right? Good technical uh, abilities, good combinations. Uh, doesn't seem to have the most power on his shots. Other than, you know, you can ask TJ Brown, who definitely was uh, planted on his butt a couple of times. But I, I, I don't even know if uh, Kai Kamaka has had a finish in the last several years. Now, I'll quickly uh, look it up for you guys right now. But it's been a long time since, you know, given his style, which is a, a striking, heavy style, good combinations and all that, I'm surprised he doesn't have more uh, wins by finish. And, yeah, just quickly just glossing over his record right now, none by knockout, which is absolutely crazy considering his uh, his style here. But uh, I do like Chavez. Uh, you know, I do think he is growing at a decent rate. The last Last fight was just a horrible stylistic matchup for him. It's very hard for him to go out there and you know get his game going when you have a guy like Jared Gordon in your face the entire time, pushing you back, landing takedowns. Obviously, that was a big part of that that matchup as well. But I don't think that's going to be Kai Kamaka's thing, right? Kai Kamaka is okay to sit at distance and kind of just distance strike with you. And I don't think that's a great way to approach a fight here with Danny Chavez. So yeah, I like the Chavez side here. I do. I don't mind him, uh, especially with the plus money that seems to be coming in or. Uh, that he's going to be sitting at come fight time. It seems like there's some Kamaka money coming in. But yeah, I, I do like Chavez. I don't know if he gets the finish. Uh, I'd consider the round three plus 14.25, but I just need a little bit more evidence from the Chavez side of things in terms of knowing that he has legitimate cardio too because I felt as though he did have some cardio issues in that TJ Brown fight where he just completely let that third round go. So that's a little bit of a concern here. And then obviously you're going to have cardio issues when you're fighting a energizer bunny like Jared Gordon. Let's see how these guys now match up against each other in this spot. But I do like Chavez. Going to take it by decision. Again, not a huge read there, uh, but I do still feel though I feel as though he should be the slight favorite in the spot, and he should get it done as well by decision. Clint, how do you feel about this matchup between two primary strikers? I think you broke it down pretty damn well, man. I'm with you on the Chavez side of things. I pulled the trigger at plus 105. I got one unit on Danny Chavez. Chavez is one of my I don't know he's one of these guys that's like mid to low tier for some reason I'm absolutely in love with him and I keep on trying to make it happen um I like his game I like the way he attacks the leg I like the way he crowds his opponents I like the heavy hands that he's got throwing in there I think Chavez is a very underrated striker and I think this is a good opportunity for him against a guy that fades that's a big thing for me is the gas tank you know Kai Kamaka is gonna have a size advantage he's gonna have a grappling advantage but is he gonna use it is he gonna use it the right way I took Chavez against Jared Gordon last time out because I think Gordon is a dead man walking when he fights power strikers and he came in heavy. This is one of those weigh-in spots where he cut 
weight. He stopped cutting weight too early, kept a, you know a little bit of gas in the tank for himself, and that really showed up on fight night. He was massive in there that night. I don't think Kai Kamaka is going to do that. He's got a little size advantage, not an extra half weight class size advantage. So if Kai Kamaka can't control this guy, he's going to get his leg beaten to hell. If they throw down on the feet, I trust the durability of Chavez. You're not taking that guy out of the cage if we're going strike for strike here, in my opinion. And I think this is a round three sprinkle opportunity. I think there's a shot that Kai Kamaka gasses out, slows down, and then we get Danny Chavez really shining, trying not to let another fight go to the judges and uh, get a big UFC win here on Saturday. I like Chavez. Going to sprinkle round three. I hope he knocks him out. Uh, John, I'm not 100% sure if you were on Brown as well last time when Brown fought uh, fought Kai Kamaka, but I was happy to cast that under a ticket in a very controversial decision, so I'm not going to be complaining too much there. Uh, what, what do you think that we've seen from both of these guys uh, in their first two fights in the UFC and how they ultimately match up with each other uh, come tomorrow night? So to be completely honest with the Brown, I had no money on Brown Kamaka, but like my view at the end of the fight was I scored at Kamaka 30-27, but I also was like... <clears throat> I could see 29, 28 for Brown. Like, you know, one of those things where I personally thought Kamaka won every round, but there were, you know, a re- it was a reasonable case for Brown winning two rounds. But so first of all, before I get into the analysis, like this fight kind of displays like full, full on display, you know, the kind of recency bias you see when it comes to like the MMA betting markets. So like you had Danny Chavez that closed minus 150 against Jared Gordon. Like I get it, Jared Gordon's chinny, but Jared Gordon is really fucking good. Like, I blasted him in that spot. And it's like the guys who don't, like, he's fought, like, the best in the world. Those are the guys who have beaten him. The guys that don't, he drowns them. Like, his pace is insane. He's an excellent grappler. He'd be minus 300 or better against literally every guy that Gordon and Kamaka have beaten in their careers. That's just the reality. And so I don't want to say toss the Jared Gordon fight out completely, but it's like Jared Gordon, when you're taping this fight, he's a completely another level than anybody else you're seeing when you're taping these fights on either side, in my opinion, anyway. And so going past that, I am not really a Kai Kamaka guy. Like, look, I like the output. I, you know, I'm a sucker for stats. I do like the output he puts out there, but he's got some cardio issues. I know he has allegedly a wrestling base, but like, I don't think he's much better than a C plus wrestler. I'd call him more of a willing wrestler than a good wrestler, which isn't a bad thing. You know, if you're doing things, you know, you're generally looking good to the judges, but he's not a guy who's going to come out here, put you on the mat and drown you for 15 minutes there. Um, On top of which you have Chavez who, he faced 13 takedowns against Gordon and Brown, both of whom are quite good wrestlers, and they went two for 13 total. Uh, and the two takedowns were both Gordon, and they both came late when Chavez was pretty tired in that fight. Um, which is to say, I think this is going to be a striking fight. And like you look at Kamaka's career, yeah, he has an output edge, but we've seen them both fight TJ Brown. Uh, TJ Brown outpaced Kamaka relatively easily, whereas uh, Chavez outlanded him a distance there and beat him up pretty bad, was landing much more power shots. And I'm not saying one plus one necessarily <laughs> equals two in this situation, but you know, we've seen one of them was able to deal with Brown on the feet pretty easy while the other one, you know, while Kamaka hurt him, Kamaka was getting landed on quite a bit in that fight. And so it comes down to me to look, I don't think Chavez necessarily has a big cardio edge, but I think he does a lot more attritional work than Kamaka does. Like, you know, a lot of leg kicks, a lot more power shots that are going to wear him down over the course of the fight. Um, I think standing, it's a competitive fight. I don't think Kamaka is likely to have a ton of wrestling success in this fight. Maybe he can land a takedown, maybe two if he's lucky. I doubt he gets significant control time, but I think it's going to be pretty close. Um, 
on minutes here. But again, you know, come back to finishing upside. I do think Chavez hits a lot harder. Uh, I think when you're talking about finishing ability, like you said, Locke, Kamaka's got no KOs in his career. You know, it's not an accident, you know, and you go back to, to like his fights with like Brian Stack and his last fight in LFA. And he was fading bad in that fight. And like Stack's like, he's a nice regional fighter, but I don't think he's someone who's likely to ever make the UFC. And he's winning striking changes late in that fight and made that a really close fight. Chavez is on a different level than that. I, I think it's a close fight. I think Chavez is better finishing upside. Um, I took two units on him at plus 110 here. I just, like I said, I think he does more interesting things than Kamaka does. He could get paced. That's definitely in play. But I just kind of think he's the better fighter and the more well-rounded fighter, to be honest. Uh, James, I had a pretty high ceiling for Kamaka, especially after that fight against Tony Kelly, but it seems to have completely dissipated, especially over his last couple of fights. Did you have a similar feel for Kai when he made his UFC debut, or were you always thinking that he was at the level that he's currently at? And then ultimately, who do you think ends up winning this fight? Yeah, not, not really, to be honest. I mean, it was a great fight. It was real entertaining, but I didn't you know, expect the guy to go on to do like amazing things. Like uh, to me, it was just more of an entertaining fight that was like fan friendly um, than anything specifically that his skill set was going to be super good. But I don't hate Kamaka. Um, look, with this fight, man, I feel like, look, it's a real close fight again. You know, if you sat me down and, you know, just convince me either side, I could probably be convinced that either fighter should be minus 125, right? If you like sat me down and just said your case right if someone else was given the case for kamaka i would probably be leaning kamaka as opposed to chavez like john and clint are on but there's a few interesting things uh, that come up on you guys breakdowns when he was talking <clears throat> one of them was look i don't think kamaka can have that much wrestling success like you said because um obviously We've seen him defend takedowns from Gordon, who's a good wrestler. We've seen him defend all the takedowns from TJ Brown. I do think, though, that um, Kamaka has slightly better cardio than Chavez. So I do think if it gets to the third round and, you know, let's say it's 1-1 in the third round, I do think Kamaka could potentially lean on the wrestling and win that third round, whether he has four minutes of control time or whether he just takes him down two you know, two times and he ends up winning the third round. So I do think the third round leans more to Kamaka. Um, and another thing I will say is about that TJ Brown Chavez fight, right? Because that's a common opponent, right? So anytime you're studying tape, if you if if both fighters that are fighting each other have a co common opponent, always go and watch them fights, right? Because you can always take a lot more than you can out of them fights than a lot of other fights, right? Anyone who watches tape, that's a that's a known thing. And I will say though, because John was saying that Chavez basically just beat the fuck out of TJ Brown and then TJ Brown versus Kamaka was a close fight but I kind of think a lot of that was predicated on the the low calf kicks right that kind of took away TJ's game real early and TJ never really recovered from that until the third round where he actually won that third round pretty handily because Chavez slowed down so I do think the first two rounds in that fight were a little bit different than the Kamaka fight because he kind of just took away his base early and he wasn't really able to get going now, look, he still did that, right? So you, you can't just say, like, it was because of that and to throw it out because he still made that damage himself. But, I, I look, I think it's a close fight, basically, to round it off. Um, I think, yeah, Kamaka could potentially throw more volume, but then I think Chavez is going to hit harder, especially with the boxing in the pocket. Anytime they do crash distance, Chavez throws really heavy in the pocket. And if he does land, he potentially could drop Kamaka, you know? He could hurt him, so... The finishing, the big moment upside is on Chavez, but then maybe the third round, uh, 
third round wrestling volume side is on Kamaka. So it's a really close fight, man. If you want a better plus money play, fair enough. But to me, I would need more plus 130, plus 150 range to bet either side in this fight. So it's a skip for me. Um, it's probably going to go to decision, but because I think it's going to be a real exciting fight, I never really like to bet them fights to go to decision. And also it's juice, minus 200 or something. So yeah, man, I, I'm going to say it's a 50-50 fight again. I'll go with Kamaka because I do think he is probably going to win the third round. So I'll say Kamaka wins, but it's a close fight, man. It's very demoralizing for me as a host to put together a show like this and have three straight fights where every all of us are pretty much like, man, it's fucking close fight. Just pass on it. But I completely understand. You guys are on the head, hitting the nail on the head here. It's it's absolutely true. All of these fights are very close and could potentially go both ways. But a fight that probably won't look that close. And I know there's going to be some polarizing opinions on this one. Can't wait to get to it. We got Chris Gritzmacher going up against Rafa Garcia. We got to minus. <laughs> I was waiting for that chuckle from john here uh we got minus 290 now for rafa garcia plus 260 on uh mr chris gritzmacher and i'm actually gonna let clint kick this one off for us how do you feel about this matchup and uh yeah what, what did you think about the wins it didn't seem like there was anything too noticeable from either guy right man i so i'll start off by saying i laid the hammer down i i did do uh five units to win two at minus 250 here on my guy rafa garcia um I don't like Grootsmacher, and I know that it's going to get real interesting when my boy Fox takes over for this uh, breakdown here. But realistically, I, I think that there's not a lot of times that you can proclaim an MMA fighter medically deceased. You know, time of death for Chris Grootsmacher was when Alexander Hernandez <laughs> touched him on the chin. I think it's over, man. I think he's washed, and I don't normally take this angle. I'm usually the guy that's like, no, no, no. But <laughs> this guy, this guy has taken so many long breaks from the game. The game has passed him by. It was passed him by the last time he had a run in the UFC, and he was lucky enough to uh, lucky enough to catch Joe Lozon, who's damaged goods at this point, and get put away there. I don't think that he should be a favorite over, you know, or really even live against any competitive fighter in the top 20 right now at this stage of his career. He's worn, he's shot, he's tired, and that's what I saw at the weigh-ins, man. I, I already had the bet in, so this wasn't like a post-weigh-in read like I do, but he looked exhausted on the scale. And I mean like dead eyes. Like he looked checked out. His body looked soft. Chris Grutzmacher is usually a very well-muscled guy. He's usually jacked up when he gets in here, and he looked a little more flabby than he usually does on the scales today. I just think he's got one foot in the grave. I, I don't think Chris Grutzmacher is here for it anymore. And we've seen Hoffa Garcia, you know, everyone counted him out in his last fight, in his UFC debut. That's all anybody's been talking about this week is how he shocked everyone, how good he looked in his debut. And that's his worst, uh, that, that's his least positive discipline is the striking, right? This guy's a grappler. So the fact that he was able to do what he did on the feet because he couldn't get the grappling going, that just shows like how good do you think he is on the mat? He's way better than people expect down there. And he's he's going against a fighter here that doesn't have a good track record when he gets taken down. So I just feel like the pieces fall into place here. And not only that, this man moved out to work with Justin Gaethje and Trevor Whitman, the best brain in the MMA game 
today, Trevor Whitman. And if he had serviceable striking, what do you think training with a guy like Gagey is going to do for this kid on the feet? Like, he's just getting better. He's the right age to be improving. He had a real steep first fight in the UFC. This is a mat- This is beyond a step down in competition. I think he's the rightful favorite. And I really think he just walks through Gritzmacher. And then we see Gritzmacher lay his gloves down at the end of the fight and retire after this one because I-, I just don't think he's long for this fight game anymore. Uh, just based off of Clint's breakdown alone, you guys could probably tell which side John is on the spot. And before <laughs> I actually pass it on over to him to actually break it down, he's like literally the only guy on Better MMA Tips that it seems is on uh, Chris Chrismacher putting his money. Literally. Where his mouth is. So, uh, John, break it down. Why do you favor Chris Chrismacher in this spot and why do you think he wins? So I did not lay the hammer down on Chris Kritzmacher. <laughs> let me just say, let me just say that. Um, but I, I do, I do like him here. I, I guess just to give you an idea of what my general feelings are on Hafa Garcia. In his last fight in Combate, I bet Umberto Bandanai against him, and I'd consider Umberto Bandanai to be like one of the worst fighters, men's fighters, to come through the UFC in quite some time. Um, <clears throat> I'm not saying Garcia is absolutely horrible. I just don't really see a whole lot that he does well, in my opinion. Like, he fought better than I expected against Nazrat, but there's, like, degrees of better, right? Like, you know, he lost the fight very cleanly. He only he threw a ton of strikes, but he only landed 22% of them, while Nazrat pretty much hit him at will. Couldn't take him down. And, look, Nazrat's got for good first-layer takedown defense, but Nazrat can be taken down if you can chain takedowns, which you can't. Um... And look, like I know Gritzmacher has been subbed, but like look at the two guys that subbed him, Chaz Skelly and Davi Hamosh. Like he went 12 minutes with Hamosh before he got subbed and was basically on his way to and started to take over that fight before you know Hamosh kind of caught a back take and subbed him there. I don't think you're seeing a level of jiu-jitsu or submission grappling from Garcia that's anywhere near what he saw there. I mean, if you look at the fight with Lauzon, like look, I get it, Joe is pretty washed at this point, but Joe really couldn't get him down or put him in any compromising positions. And I would put Garcia's grappling personally at about that level. And so if I don't think Garcia can dominate the grappling, and I really don't think he can here, I'd be surprised if Garcia was to get like substantial control time and or submit him. I just don't really rate his submission grappling at all. Like beating a bunch of like guys who aren't very good in jiu-jitsu and combate doesn't really tell me a whole lot. It's like Manny Bermudez subbed a million guys who were like 0-1 before he came to the UFC and got the Bermudez Triangle nickname. So it's like, you're going to tell me on the feet. Like, I'm not saying Gritz is better on the feet, but, you know, his metrics check out. He's a guy who's going to go forward and throw a ton of output. And, like, that kind of guy is easy to deal with if you have the tools to deal with. You know, can you teep? Can you jab and move? Can you do stuff like that? Do you have, like, a solid clinch game? But I haven't seen really anything from Garcia to make me think he has those tools. Now, he may have those tools because he hasn't really faced that kind of archetype, that kind of fighter who's going to bite the mouthpiece, go forward, look to force the clinch, and just force, like, a heavy brawl-type fight. But, again, I haven't really seen him display that yet. And so, like, my general philosophy of betting fights is – don't make an assumption that someone has something you haven't seen. It's much safer to assume they have, they don't have it. And, you know, on the other side of it, it's like, look, I agree with Clint. Like, that KO from Alex Hernandez was fucking brutal. Um, it was tough to watch. And he may well be done here. But, like, we just talked about the Kai Kamaka. You know, Hafa Garcia has got one KO in his career. Um, and what I have learned over the years is – KOs on the regional scene aren't predictive of how much power you'll generally carry in the UFC, but a lack of KOs is very predictive of you not knocking out many guys when you get to the UFC. Very few guys Trevin have – what was that? Trevin, Trevin Jones says, shut up, John. Yeah, Trevin Jones. <laughs> <laughs> <Not> Trevin Jones. <laughs> 
<laughs> you are right. He's in a, a, I, I only one. Like, like only one. Yeah. Yeah. Like but, only one. And so it's like if Garcia does knock him out and he shot fine, and I would favor Garcia. And I do favor him in this spot just because Gritz is old. He's never been the most skilled guy in the world to begin with. But like if he doesn't get finished. I don't really see a way it's not a close fight down the stretch and you don't have a close fight and a decision. And so, like, personally, I put Garcia at about 60%, which, you know, you can make an argument that if I'm putting him there, I should have more on Gritzmacher, and I'm kind of waiting, and if it goes to plus 300, I might add to it. Like I said, it's not super confident, but I would pretty much favor every guy, including Joe Lazon's corpse that Gritz in Gritz's last four fights against Hoffa Garcia. I, I, that's just my own personal opinion. Maybe I'll look you know, very wrong in hindsight, but I think long-term, this is a decent spot. You take a guy who's fought way better competition you know, in a spot where he looks bad against another guy who really hasn't beaten anything. He beat Esteban. The only other two, two UFC guys he's beaten are Roberto Bandana and Esteban Payan, who are like a combined one and eight in the UFC. And so we'll see, but I like Ritz here. I like it. I like it. It's it's you don't have to make that deep of a case for especially for somebody that's a plus two fifty. So if you see a bit of an edge, I, I completely get it. And I love the the approach that you're taking for this, James. Uh you, you gotta you gotta side with John here in terms of uh picking the the, the rickety old Chris Gritzmacher, or do you think that Hafa has the goods to go out there and put him away? I can't pick Chris, man. I can't pick Chris <laughs> in twenty twenty one, you know. Like I think the guy might be done, and it's always hard to play that game, right? Is he done? Does he still have another fight left? A lot of times you think he's done and he's got another fight left. To be honest, even last week, um, Darren Elkins, I kind of think Darren Elkins is a skeleton, right? Is a, is a shell of himself. He was still able to weather the storm and defeat Derek Minna. Now, I didn't back Derek Minna, especially not a chalk. I backed the under, right? So I kind of packaged that in. But it's always hard to like say, is he done or not? But in that Alexander Hernandez fight, I know it was an early stoppage. I'm like, Early stoppage, as in two minutes into the fight, not an early stoppage. That was definitely not an early stoppage. Want to see somebody die in there, James? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, yeah, it was early, right? Two minutes, but he didn't look good in that fight. And I know Alex is like in and out, darting movements. He's a young guy. He's quite fast. He can make you look stupid. I just didn't like what I saw, right? It is what it is. I didn't like the way he was reacting to even the first shot he took out. I just didn't like, you know, his game in there. Um, Rafa Garcia doesn't bring that, right? He doesn't bring that fast pace, that in and out energetic movement. He's more meat and potatoes. He'll walk in the middle. Yeah, he'll try to grapple. He'll throw big hooks and stuff like that. I kind of feel like that it, it's a very bad matchup for Chris Grootsmacher, though, because, like, I just don't see too many paths of victory for Chris. Like, let's say it does go to decision. Let's say he doesn't knock him out, which is definitely possible because Chris has been knocked out or finished in every single one of his losses. Now, they are against decent fighters, but I think he even got one loss early on like he likes to be finished when he gets beat but if he doesn't knock him out right the the line is a pick him like minus 110 a piece whether it goes to decision or not right which tells you what the bookmakers think of it because Hafa Garcia massive um favorite a lot of people picking him to finish but the line is just you know pick him to go to decision Chris isn't easy to stop like he's a tough guy right although in his last fight he didn't show that but if it does go to decision, I don't see Chris out voluming um, Rafa Garcia. I don't see him hurting Rafa Garcia. So I don't really see him outpacing at all Rafa Garcia. I think Garcia has very, very good cardio. So I just don't really see too many avenues for Chris to win this fight. Even if it does end up being a close fight, like John says, I feel like it's a close fight that he's never really going to win. You know, I just think Rafa Garcia... He's going to keep the pace. He's going to throw loads of strikes. 
Um, he's gonna, he ain't gonna get tired. Now, to John's point, if he bites down on the mouthpiece, puts him up against the cage, maybe he's start, gonna start to get tired then. You know, haven't really seen anything from tape where someone's done that to Hafa. But Hafa's a brick of a guy himself. You know, he's a big, tough, like a small, stocky, tough dude. I don't see Chris really pushing him up against the cage, you know, fighting like that. So I'm finding it real hard to find a way Chris wins the fight. Um, but I'm not laying minus 330 or whatever it is on Rafa Garcia. If he was minus 250, I potentially might lay that, you know, but I, I didn't um, I didn't do the tape when that happened. I probably put him around 70 to 75%. Yeah, I probably put him about 75% at minus 300 or something like that. So I think the line's fairly accurate, but um, I'm going with Garcia to win. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll pretty much start off my breakdown by saying, yeah, I'm picking Garcia to win this fight too. I do think that he can definitely go out there and, and get the finish, but I will give some more credence to Gritzmacher, which I do think that, you know, John was definitely on the nail in terms of saying that he does have a better shot than what the odds are actually indicating. Now, I know a lot of the people uh, out there that are taking uh, Garcia in the spot, they, the, the consensus seems to be that he's going to be able to get Gritzmacher out of there in the first round. Now, if that doesn't happen, that's where my question mark lays, right? Like if he goes out there and doesn't get that first round, not sure for transmission, whatever it might be. We've seen him kind of slow down later in fights and albeit, you know, against lower level of competition. So he's able to actually go out there and still get the win, even if he gets pushed later into rounds. But it's just not a good look to me. And again, Gritzmacher is probably that level as well too. But what I like to compare him to is is the poor man's Darren Elkins, which is not the greatest compliment either, right? Because you already know that Darren Elkins is where he is. But I feel as though... Oh, this Elkins slander. I will not stand for it. Sorry, <laughs> I catched with him last week as well. Too. Leave the <laughs> legend alone. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> But no, I think that if he does survive that first round, now he he could potentially put it on Garcia too. And the fact that a lot of people want to look at the Nazareth fight and be like, look, this guy went 15 minutes with this guy and he survived it. But there's two completely different game plans that you're going to be getting from Nazareth compared to Gritzmacher, right? From Nazareth, we saw a Matador type of style where he was just letting Garcia come to him, waiting for his opportunities to pop. Then he would land the better strikes there and get the, obviously get the decision based on that. What Chris is going to do, at least in my opinion, is kind of push the fight to him. Put, put it on him, like push him up against the cage or, you know, try to out-muscle him. Will he? Maybe, maybe not. But I think that he'll start to wear on him in that aspect and could potentially make it a lot dirtier and grindier of a fight than Garcia is actually used to. Um, th that That's my concern. I've seen Garcia fade in the past, although his only loss was his last fight, so he's been still able to pull off uh, wins even when he's fading. It is a bit of concern, especially when he starts to go further into his UFC career. Uh, I'm not going to make it too long-winded. Both of these guys, or all three of these guys, have pretty much hit the nail on the head in how this fight should go down. I do pick Garcia, and I do actually have a bet on this. It's actually my dog of the night play. I, I like the uh, the under two and a half in this spot, plus 100. Uh, I do think, obviously, there is a high upside for Garcia to get that finish early here, or if this fight does get pushed later on, I'm not completely ruling out the potential that uh, Gritzmarker could just overwhelm uh, Garcia the later that this fight goes and just put on his best Darren Elkins uh, impression to, to get the victory here, but I do think Garcia finds a chin eventually and, and, and puts him out there. Gritzmarker just does not seem like he's taking shots well at all, and uh, Garcia, you know, albeit very limited in his striking arsenal, throws everything into his fucking punches. And if you can uh, catch a slow and plodding uh, Chris Gritzmacher, I don't think it's going to be a long night for Gritzmacher in this spot. So yeah, I like Garcia. Am I laying the minus 330 or not? Uh, definitely not. I'd rather take the under two and a half and, uh, you know, just kind of 
hopefully it gets, goes up there and gets that knockout. I will say there were some crazy lines for the knockout, which I think was like plus 400 or something like that. Round one plus 500 or something like that. Like there are certain spots that you could definitely extract some more value out of it. Uh, but we got to make sure that, uh, you know, Garcia will actually be able to get him out of there. Last thing I'll say about this fight, I'll always come back to this, especially for matchups like this. Shout out to my guy, AJ Sholo. Do not put too much stock into the standing KO because if it doesn't transpire, how does the rest of the fight go down? I feel like Garcia might still have him covered, but like a perfect example is the Sumadarji versus Zarugadashev fight. Everybody's like, uh, Sue is going to go out there and starch him in the first round. He doesn't. Luckily enough, Mudarji is still good enough to go out there and get the decision victory. Can Garcia do that here against a tough gritsmucker? Maybe. <laughs> but I'm going to go Gritzma or, or Garcia first round knockout. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got the prelim headliner between Colin Anglin and Melsik Bogdazarian. My pick for sleeper of the night for a potential fight of the night spot. I think it's going to be absolutely bananas in terms of odds. We're looking at, we're looking at minus 145 for Melsik and plus 125 for Colin Anglin. And uh, John, I'm actually going to get you to kick this one off for us, brother. How do you feel about this matchup? Well, first of all, I mean, it tells you all you know about this card that this is the prelim headliner. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right? Dude, it was it was Nico Montano Wu Yanan before. <laughs> that was the prelim headliner. <laughs> but like, I don't know. I think it's it's kind of funny. Like, you couldn't pay me really to bet this fight with two guys coming off contenders, both of which have different questions. On the England side, I just I really don't think England is that skilled, to be honest. I, I do appreciate his willingness to wrestle, uh, how often he tries to wrestle, but also, you know, he's wrestled a bunch of guys that are really bad, non-contenders. He basically kind of just Homer Simpsoned his way into his opponent being exhausted and winning that fight. Um, I, I, it's just kind of a style that, you know, I touched on it on my podcast the other night, but I think it's kind of a style that there are some guys in the UFC who have the durability to kind of excel at long-term, like guys like Justin Gage and whatnot. Guys who are just, you know, stupid durable who can take punishment and just kind of wear guys down like that. But I think most guys cannot, um, which isn't they. Maybe he is one of those guys. I don't really know. But in terms of skill, I don't really see it for England. Like, he's a willing wrestler, but I don't think he's very good, at least not yet. I don't think he's a great grappler. Like, I don't think his top game is anything to write home about. Um, but on the other side, you have Melsic Bajzarin, who it's kind of funny because I think the inverse I feel about him, whereas I look at Melsic and I'm like, this guy seems like he's really fucking skilled. Like, I, I, I just – I see his striking. I'm like, man, it's clean as fuck. He clearly hits hard. But also, you know, he fought a bunch of nobodies, you know, to get to contender series. Bunch of, I think, what do you have, like four straight wins inside 30 seconds or inside a minute? Something crazy like that. Um, and then he goes on contenders. He fights Dennis Bazooka, who, shout out Long Island guy. But, you know, he, Bazooka is not even close to a, a you know, a UFC caliber fighter. And, you know, obviously Melsic looked great early in that fight. But you saw once it started creeping up to the seven, eight minute mark, you know, that gas tank started to wane. And suddenly that became a close fight. If I recall correctly, I think it was 29 28. Um, and so it's weird because, on the one hand, I think the upside for Melchick is considerably higher long term than it is for Colin Anglin. But on the other hand, there is a lot of unknowns for Melchick's game. I think the very, very small sample we have of Melchick's grappling seems okay. Uh, but again, you know, that's going to, it's going to face different, different competition, the higher he goes. And so that's a question mark. His cardio is a big question mark. And so you have this weird kind of Frankenstein fight where you have one guy who's not that skilled, but seems very durable, but debuting in the UFC against a guy who seems very skilled, but seems kind of gassy also making his debut in the UFC. And it's like, 
something's got to give here. Which is it going to be? I don't know. I, I guess you could make a case for Anglin as a dog, but for me, I'm like, I don't know. Like I, I'm very confident that Melsic has skills, whereas I'm not so confident in Anglin. So I don't really want to make a play. I'm kind of hoping this gets extended and goes 15 just so we get some data either way. But yeah, I mean, it'll be a fun fight for sure. I definitely think it could potentially steal the uh, the fight of the night honors for sure. Uh, James, how do you feel about this matchup between two solid strikers, in my opinion? Yeah, I mean, look, man, again, you know, we, we come to a place where it, it's hard to kind of give a full breakdown, like, because we don't know much about Melsic, right? Obviously, Anglin, we've got quite a decent amount of tape, right? But with Melsic, he's been 15 minutes one fucking time. You know what I mean? Like, how I see people confident on Melsic, like, yeah, you know, he's going to blow Anglin away. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely ludicrous. Like, we've seen the guy go 15 minutes once, and that was the only decent fighter he fought. He couldn't finish him in five seconds like he did every other fighter right and he lost the second round now i will say he got a second win in the third round kind of like Pulaheni soriano last week um which is always good to see right so he didn't completely fall apart when that early ko didn't come so you would expect that he's not gonna completely fall apart if the early early ko doesn't come but also i don't i think you know in this matchup colin anglin if he isn't dead within 30 seconds or five minutes i think he's going to be pushing way way harder than bazooka was right i think he's probably a better fighter and he's definitely more experienced and he definitely has better pace and pressure going into the later rounds and to be honest that's kind of an archetype you want against someone like melsic bagbazarian right you want someone who looks durable at least he looks durable you know and then he comes on strong later that fight goes and he proactively wrestles constantly if you was like to me build someone to fight melsic bagbazarian I'll build someone like Colin Anglin, but just way better than Colin Anglin, right? So, like, look, I feel like Melsic's probably got a very good chance of stopping this guy in round one. But if he doesn't stop him in round one and he starts to get tired like he did in his last fight, I think Colin Anglin's going to make him even more tired than he was in his last fight. And I think Colin Anglin could even get him out of there late, man. I really do. So, yeah, we've seen Melsic go 15 minutes once. I'm not going to fucking say too much about this fight. Um, I'm going to go with Colin Anglin. Fuck it. Round three finish, plus 2,000, ship it, bankroll on it, and then, you know, send me some money to say thanks. <laughs> I love the I love the confidence in that spot. But you're right in terms of the <laughs> – I, 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 but the, the main thing here is the fact that the amount of data that we have out there on Mousek is just not enough to – formulate a legitimate breakdown of this fight right like you can either say Bagdasarian is going to go out there and knock him out in the first round or in the second and third round we just don't truly know how it's going to go down right like I wasn't completely let down with uh the fact that Melsic was able to kind of keep it together in rounds two and three against a guy like Bazookia but is Anglin going to kind of approach it in the same way to me it looked like uh, Bazookia was almost intimidated by the amount of power and uh, striking that was coming his way even later in those rounds, right? Like even though it wasn't coming in, uh, coming at him with the ferocity and the speed and the and the freshness as it was in the first round, it was still doing some decent work in the second and third round to at least nullify what was coming back his way from uh, from Bazookia. He could potentially do the same thing here against Anglin. Like I, I think that he could put some power and hurting on Anglin, and Anglin might be a little bit too you know intimidated to let his own striking go in the second and third rounds, and he could just piss away this fight 
by just waiting too long for his opportunity. And then Melsic is the one actually putting it, not volume per se, but at least putting activity together, you know, being the one that's kind of moving forward. And, and I like the fact that even in that Bazookia fight that it, it looked like he was slightly slowing down. He didn't really let his foot off the gas in the, in the sense that he was actually still moving forward and still throwing strikes and still trying to impose his will in that in, in that uh, in that spot. I think he could do the same thing here against Anglin, right? I do think that he could go out there and and put that kind of pressure and that type of striking style on uh, on Anglin. But we just need more data to go out there and be truly confident in it. Am I confident to this point to to, to bet it at minus one forty five? No, it's just due to the lack of data. Give me more data. Let's give him. Two more fights. I hope these fights go 15 minutes so that we can extract a little bit more from Bagdasarian and see if he, if he can go out there and actually give us an efficient and effective 15 minutes rather than just that one fight against Dennis Bazookia, who probably isn't even UFC level at this point, right? So that's something that we need to, to worry about as well. James, you're going to add something to this? No, no. Oh, okay. But, I, don't know. I, I, will, I, I will now. You said it. I, I, I think that Melsic in round one is a hugely live possibility. So don't. Yes, if you do yes. put your bankroll on it, don't be starting DMing me if he does get knocked out in round one because that's definitely possible. I don't think Anglin's very good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I the, My ultimate like prediction for this matchup is going to be Bogdasarian by round one KO. I do think that he'll be able to find the, uh, the, the strats here. I think he's just a nice, tight, crisp like combination striker with a lot of power on his shots, obviously, whereas Anglin looks a little bit more loose and kind of free flowy with his striking style. And I think that's going to be kind of to his detriment here, especially once he starts to eat the counter shots of Bogdazarian. But I do like Bogdazarian in this spot. I think he gets the first round knockout, but if it get, does get extended past that first round, I'd like to see what other fighters uh, will do against a guy like Bogdazarian, especially if they don't get intimidated by the power that's going to be coming back his way. So, yeah, I like uh, Bogdazarian here. Not much confidence because of the lack of data, but I do think that he can get the KO. Round one, take a little bit of a sprinkle on that. I think it's worth a shot. But outside of that, uh, you know, hard to really plant your flag on this fight just due to, you know, we need to see more of Melsic. Clint, how do you feel about this matchup? Do you see an edge on either side here? I mean, you guys absolutely broke the hell down out of this fight. Like, there's not a whole lot left for me to say. I got to tell you, though, I love the way Lucrative said that if he was going to build someone, it would be Colin Anglin just a whole lot better. Like, that's, <laughs> you couldn't have said it any better. You need someone durable enough to weather the storm and then flip the script. Uh, shout out to the king, Darren the Damage Elkins, once again, because everyone else disrespecting him. I'm going to give the guy his props. That's the kind of guy you need here. So... I don't know what it is, guys. Colin Anglin is one of those fighters that for some reason I just hate his face. I don't <laughs> like the guy. I don't want to back him. I don't want to give him any credit. I tried to bet against him on the Contender Series. That didn't work out for me. And now here he comes to his UFC debut, and I'm going, finally, somebody who in round one is going to punch this kid in the mouth. I can't wait to get behind him. And then, yeah, just like you guys said, uh, we don't know that that's going to happen because if he gets out of the first round, then he probably flips the script on this guy I don't think I can trust Melsic I do think that uh, he he's a lot like the Shabazians that come out of the same camp he's probably going to do very well against the mid to low level of competition just because of that raw offensive you know power but then he's going to hit a peak where that peak will be we're not sure. Maybe it's Saturday. Maybe he just isn't that great, and uh, we're all you know riding on him way too early. I don't know. What I think the play in this spot is, though, is the under two and a half. You know, I think uh, you guys all kind of nailed it. It's Anglin round one. That's the most likely outcome, and 
if if Colin Anglin, I'm sorry, Melsic round one, if Colin Anglin is able to weather the storm, if he's able to get through this thing, he's a much better fighter than anybody that Melsic has fought before. And especially if he goes to that grappling, I think the submission is going to be live once Melsic slows down. Because like Lucrative said, he caught that third, you know, that third round extra wind. I don't know if you get there. If you're completely gassed out in round two and you've got Anglin on top of you for a full five minutes, I don't know if you see round three. So getting plus money on the under two and a half when the most likely outcome is a round one finish, if you're going to bet this fight, I think that's the way to go. Yeah, I was definitely looking at the under two and a half there too. I just don't know if Anglin is that guy that's actually going to get that finish or what the level of durability that uh, Bogdasarian brings to the table here because to this point, he, he seems to have held up pretty well. But then again, we only have like 16 minutes of tape on this guy to actually study. All right, let's move on to the next fight. It is the main card that we got coming up next year. It is the five fight main card. It's been a while since we've seen five fights on the main card of a fight night. But I do want to take this time to remind it, the 280 live viewers that we currently have. Make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe. And I do have the Twitter handles of all these guys listed in the comment section below. Or sorry, the description below. So make sure you guys go over there, click that link, and then follow these guys if you guys aren't already because as you guys can already tell, they have a wealth of experience and knowledge to share with you guys to try to make some money for you guys every fucking Saturday night. All right, let's move on to the next fight. Uh, again, first fight on the main card, we got Brian Barbarina, big favorite, as always, uh, as most people are against Jason Witts. Uh, in terms of the specific odds, uh, we're looking at minus 265 for Barbarina, plus 225 the return on Jason Witt. And I believe we are with uh james here james i'm gonna let you kick this one off brother how do you feel about this matchup between uh barbarina coming back from all these surgeries and all this craziness outside the octagon and then jason Witt, who seems to you know just blow on his chin he might go out yeah yeah tell me about it man money line jason Witt last time out against matthew semmelsberger but i did hedge it not hedge but i also bet that under so i actually broke even you know because i knew he could die and you know he could die again here brian barbarina definitely doesn't hit as hard as semmelsberger but i think that you know the attrition the attritional game of barbarina probably is going to um win him the fight here uh you know when you see minus 300 and stuff on brian barbarina it's not like um it's not an auto bet right you don't rush into it like God, I want to bet this dude at minus 300. And I don't think Jason Witt's a terrible fighter. I just think he's very, very vulnerable, you know? Like, he's got a decent wrestling game. Strikling obviously takes some work. But, yeah, I, I think Brian Barberini is going to win this fight, as you can tell. I think he's going to win it inside the distance. Inside the distance, like, plus 100. So, still getting plus money on that play. Um, what else do I want to say about this fight? Yeah, I, I, look, I think Jason Witt's probably going to have some early success. I don't think he's going to die within the first 10 seconds. Um, I think he's going to probably be able to get some takedowns. But Bam Bam, you know, he would never just lie down, right? You've never seen that before. Even Anthony Ivey last time out, he took him down like five or six times, kept getting back to his feet. And when he got back to his feet, he did punish Anthony Ivey. There was a couple of times Anthony Ivey looked a little bit wobbled in that fight. And he's Anthony Ivey, but then also is James Jason Witt, right? So Jason Witt's been stopped in every single one of his losses, so I just think come that second round, if it gets there, come that second, third round, um, I think J Jason Witt's going to be tired from all the wrestling he's going to have to do because Brian's not going to let him get anything for free. If he does take him down, he's going to get straight back up to his feet or he will work to get back up to his feet, you know, push himself to the cage, get back up to his feet, and then he's going to unload when he is on the feet. I think Jason Witt's going to be tired by that second round from trying to take him down, and I think Brian's probably just going to wear on him 
And, you know, I think he's going to take him out just from that attritional um, war of attrition. If you want to take the shot on Jason Witt, I'm not going to hate on you because I do think Jason Witt's, you know, the line might be a little bit wide. But I just think if you want to play Brian, probably should just um, just look at the inside the distance line. You're turning like a minus 350 into a plus 100 on definitely the most likely way he's going to win because I don't really see Jason lasting too long if he isn't able to just get 12 minutes of top control time, which I don't think he's going to be able to do. So Brian Barbarina, TKO round two for me. I like it. I like it. This fight almost reminds me a little bit of the Garcia and the uh, and the Gritzmarker fight. And the fact that I feel like a lot of this line or the reason the line is this wide is people just expect Barbarina to knock him out with the first exchange that he throws out there. And I get that sentiment. Obviously, it's not a good look with seeing uh, Jason Wick go out the way that he did against Takashi Sato. And then obviously, most recently, with Matthew Sevensberger. But like, I've never really accredited Brian Barberina as this crazy knockout puncher, right? Like he is, he has good finishing capabilities. Don't get me wrong, but he never really struck me as that guy that I'm like, Oh, you got to watch out for that big right hand of his or something like that. But again, mix that in with the possible durability issues of wit here. Yeah, it could absolutely come to fruition. But again, my question mark is what does it look like if this fight gets stretched out and I could see instances where Jason Witt has some issue uh, or some, uh, some, some success landing takedowns, possible top control. Yeah. Uh, Brian Barberina does a good job in terms of getting back to his feet. But I do think that Whit probably has better top control than what we were seeing from Anthony Ivey. I don't really rate Anthony Ivey that high anymore, but I do think that Jason Whit could potentially get some success with some control time in this spot. Um, with that said, though, it's hard for me to shake that image of Jason Witt just getting starched. It's, it's very difficult. I know Brian Barberino, when he needs to, he can definitely put that together and, and find that knockout blow if he needs to. My issue also is I probably am suffering from a little PTSD, laying the chalk on Brian Barberino against Randy Brown. That was one spot where I was just like, damn, Barberino, how could you let me down on this spot? But then again, once you see the fight play out, it absolutely makes sense. And I definitely was underestimating Randy Brown a lot in that fight. Um, but it, yeah, in this fight, I do think that weight could have some success. Will his durability be able to keep up? Ultimately, I don't think so. I do like Barbarena as well. Uh, the out of the cage stuff is a little bit concerning, obviously. Uh, you know, rumors of him wanting to retire and that crazy like stomach surgery where they had to remove a piece of his intestines or whatever the fuck it was. That's a little bit of a concern as well. Um, but you know, it, it looks like Jason Witt's almost in the best condition we've ever seen him in, at least being inside the UFC octagon, right? He looks in great shape. He looks in phenomenal condition, um, saying all the right things with interviews and all that stuff. So I don't think it's as much of a walk in the park as the line is making it out to be. But I think ultimately we'll see Barbarina eventually find that chin, whether it's an accumulation of strikes, whether it's one of those instances or scenarios where he gets back to his feet. Jason Witt is kind of huffing and puffing a little bit, trying to catch his breath from trying to hold down Brian Barbarina and then eventually gives up a TKO in that spot as well. So I do like Barbarina in his spot. I'm not laying the chalk. I'm trying to keep him off my parlays as well, uh, like my lottery and DGEM parlays, just in case Witt does pull off the upset and uh yeah again shout out to the people that are officially playing jason witt in this spot i don't think it's a terrible spot i really don't think it's a terrible spot uh at plus 220 especially but i will ultimately be taking barbarina to win this fight by knockout uh let's say first round i'm gonna go first round knockout for barbarina clint how do you feel about mr uh barbarina in this spot going up against jason witt 
You guys broke this one down excellently again. I mean, this one, it, it's weird because it, this is one of those fight cards where it seems like there's really only one narrative. You know what I mean? Like all of us are picking on the same exact story beats on all these fights because there's just not a whole lot of other ways you can imagine the fight going. Like Jason Witt is going to engage in the grappling because he has to. He's either going to smother Brian Barbarena and win a decision or he's going to get knocked out when Brian Barbarena gets up. There's differences in their striking on the feet, Barbarena is a much better striker, much higher level competition, and it all comes down to the durability of Jason Witt. Like you mentioned, Locke, he's in great shape. He looks like Witt's in the best shape of his life, so that could be an issue here. Something that kind of sticks out for me, though, something different from what everybody's talking about, is if you listen to these guys' interviews, if you listen to them talk, you know, Brian Barbarena was talking about retiring before his last fight against Anthony Ivey. That was a big storyline coming in against Anthony Ivey, was people were scared to lay the chalk on Barb because they thought he was hanging it up and now that seems to kind of rolled over into his next fight but if you listen to his interview he knew he was coming back when he got into trouble and he got that surgery situation going on this time around he went i'm fighting again so he did not let himself get out of shape he did not let himself blow up he made sure that he stayed in decent condition he walked as uh, they said that they had to keep his heart rate at a certain level but he would go for walks and then stop to calm down just so he got some kind of physical exercise during the recovery process so for me that mentality, that mental state that speaks worlds about a guy. Is he retiring? Does he have one foot in the grave or not? No, this guy wants to be here. He wants to fight again. And I think that matters. So against a guy like Witt, he's just too fragile. You know, it's it's not a good look to get knocked out by a jab, man. No matter how much you want to say it was a fluke or anything like that, you don't just get knocked out by a jab. So I do think this fight is going to be closer. I do think it's going to be more competitive. I do think we'll see Witt have some success grappling early. Uh, and I kind of think that we need to throw that round one jab kind of out the window because Barb doesn't have that level of power. And he does have sketchy takedown defense. But what he has is a good get-up game. I do think this is going to be a round two or a round three KO for Barbarena. So it may not look like he's paying off that minus 300 tag. But I think eventually he's going to find the chin of Witt. And I we all know Witt just can't take that. So I think the, the volume will accumulate and we're looking for a later finish here with Brian Barbarana. I like it. I like it. Uh, the forever contrarian John Stargan, do you have a, do you have a contrarian take here with uh, Jason Witt or do you think that Barbarana rolls? I mean, I was on Witt huge against Semmelsberger and that was so, <laughs> so unfortunate. It's kind of funny looking at Witt's career, right? Because I think stylistically, He's probably a better fighter than both Semmelsberger and Sato. Like there is a scenario where he's easily three and zero here, and I'm generally like one of the people who's like, ah, chinniness is overrated. You know, there's very few guys who are actually chinny. Usually, it's bad defense. But in Witt's case, man, like it is, it's almost to a point where I'm like, there's got to be some fucking positive regression here at some point, right? Like this is crazy. Like you know how how and even even going back to the regional scene. And it, so it's like looking at this fight, like I don't really dispute much what you guys are saying. Like I, what I will say is I do think, you know, if Wick gets him down, I think he probably has uh, – certainly has a better top game than Ivy and maybe has an ability, a more of a chance to, you know, actually do some work on top, maybe get some ground and pound. I doubt he can sub him. Um, like I, I think Wick can win minutes here, to be honest, if he can like kind of survive. I think he has a chance to keep the minutes competitive. Like if it goes to a decision – you're not going to feel very good about a minus 250 bet. That I can guarantee you. Um, it's just really a matter of how often does he get knocked out. And, like, 
for me, like that's hard to figure. Like I'm usually the guy that's like, all right, I'm going to fade past knockouts and just kind of trust that this is kind of, you know, due for like something positive regression. But in Witt's case, I've seen it too often. And so it's like, even if I favor him in a decision, I do think a Barbarina finish is, it's got to be around 40%. And at that point, it's like finding value. It's getting pretty thin. Um, I don't have a bet either side. I don't think Barbarina is a great defensive grappler. You guys all touched on it. He does have a pretty good get-up game. But, like, if this fight gets extended, Witt's going to hit takedowns here. I think Witt's got to actually has a UFC-level skill set and is a pretty good grappler. But, yeah, you know, Lucrative touched on it. Um, with Barbarina's get-up game, you know, Witt's not Colby Covington. At some point, he's going to start slowing. And when he does, Barbarina's going to start getting off on his shots. Uh, whether he finishes him or not, I don't know. Um, I don't blame anybody for taking the Witt stab. but like. If I don't think he can flatten him out and hold him down for a long time, it's just hard for me to trust Witt to win this fight anywhere else. So it's a pass for me. Yeah, I think you might be leaving a little bit of money on the table if you just don't even decide to take uh, Wit to win by decision, which is sitting at plus 535, but you already got a plus 220 dog. So yeah. we don't need to get too greedy over here. Um, all right, let's move on to the next fight. We got Nicholas Stolce going up against Jared Gooden. Jared Gooden obviously stepping in on short orders for Ramazan Amiv. I believe he took the fight on four days notice in key steps, makes weight. At the wins this morning, obviously doesn't look too bad. Uh, and then Stolce obviously obviously looked pretty good on the scales himself. I don't have the most to really add about this fight. Not too big on betting either side here. I still feel like we need to see a little bit more of Stolce. Talk about a very tough uh, UFC debut going up against a guy like Ramazan Amiv, who even though most of his fights look like they're close, he just does such a good job of like still eking out decisions in those spots and kind of like nullifying the the approach of his opponents. Here against Jared Gooden, I do think that we'll see Stolce have uh, pretty much the advantage in all almost every aspect here other than the explosiveness and the power. I do think that his cardio is definitely going to shine through. Obviously not a good look for Jared Gooden, you know, coming in on short notice, already having cardio issues. Who knows if he was already ready to go to, to take a fight, albeit, you know, he did take the fight on four days notice and he did make weight. Not at, you know, nor, more often now when you see fighters take a, a fight on such short notice, they usually like to take that bump up in weight so they don't have to cut as much weight. But the fact that Gooden was close enough to at least make weight within four days is a good enough sign for him. But it's still a little bit of a question mark regarding the, the level of readiness he's actually going to have once he steps into this cage here. You got Stolze coming off a full training camp, whereas Gooden, you know, just found out four or five days ago who he's actually going to be going up against. Um, in terms of the stylistic breakdown, again, I I do think that Gooden will start to slow as the fight starts to go on. I do think that Stolze will land the better shots. I think he'll land some takedowns in this fight too, which will be very important for him, especially to nullify the power that's going to be coming back his way from Gooden. I think Gooden will be the faster striker here for you know maybe half of the fight, but after that, I think it's going to start to taper off. So yeah, he is definitely allowed to find a big shot and potentially put Stolze down, which is why I don't think it's a, a great idea to go out there and back Stolze at minus 190. But I do like Stolze to win this fight. So I do think that he, you know, takes over at least in the second and third rounds. Does he finish Gooden? I, I don't think so. I think that Gooden is, uh, you know, durable enough at this point in time in his career. But I do think that Stolze will get the better of him probably in the second and third rounds and then go out there and win a decision in this fight. Again, no strong read here. Don't like the line on either side. You know, I, I almost think it's almost a spin in the face to us as, as fans to have this fight as the second fight on the main card. You know, let throw fucking Adeshev and Benoit on this on this main card instead, right? I don't really understand the the, the narrative for this, but at least I'm going to be with my guy Z. So we'll try to make some fun with it when we're doing the fight companion for this fight. But yeah, I like Stolze. I like him by decision. No uh, strong uh, confidence there, though. Clint, you got any 
uh, stronger read on this. I believe when we uh, when you did the show on Monday, this fight wasn't even announced. So let's get your actual read on this fight and how you think it's going to go down. You're going to get your hair braided while you're hanging out with Z there, Locke? <laughs> Probably. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> Word on the street is he has somebody that likes to braid hair. So <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Shout out to Rockstar Z. No, man, this, uh, this was a cancellation that happened after my Monday show, so a lot of people didn't get to hear any breakdown for it. And honestly, I haven't gotten to do a ton of tape on Jared Gooden. I'm kind of mostly going from memory, so uh, everybody take everything I say with a little bit of a grain of salt. But I almost feel like this line is a little bit disrespectful. People don't really realize that Jared Gooden is really young. This kid is at the stage where we expect leaps and bounds of improvements and we can see we haven't seen his higher ceiling yet you know what i mean he's been incredibly durable he's dug deep we've seen improvements in every single fight that he's been in and then the one time this guy has been finished on the feet it was short notice up a weight class against a monster on the contender series so I don't have any questions about Jared Gooden's ability to dig deep and be a dog in this fight. And getting plus 160, plus 165 on him, I feel like that's kind of the way to go dog or pass. Nicholas Stolza is a guy that I feel like he plays chess on the feet. He's a very talented striker. He doesn't jump out at me anywhere though. He's got a tight squeeze. He can jump for he can jump the gilly. He likes to go for that. But he doesn't impress me, overly speaking, on the ground, and he doesn't seem like he's got the most killer power on the feet either. So because of that, he's really just going to have to out-finesse Jared Gooden on the feet for 15 straight minutes. Can he? Yes. Yes, he can. But Jared Gooden, like I said, I'm expecting improvements. He's got good boxing. He's a big body in there. We're in the apex. If he does feel like grappling, dude's a brown belt. People don't realize how good he is on the mat. I think this fight is a lot more competitive than people are realizing, and I think Jared Gooden probably has the finishing upside. If one of these guys is going to land a big bomb he probably is going to be the one to do it so i think this is a dogger pass spot and i'm honestly very tempted we've seen the underdogs do very very well in 2021 coming in on short notice these guys that fill in it's almost like they're snipers it's almost like they see a matchup they like and don't forget jared gooden's 0-2 in his ufc run right now his back's probably against the wall he's got to get a win and he looked at nicholas stolza and went i can take out that guy I like it. I like it. I always love when Clint's able to make a solid case for the underdog, especially a plus 165 dog, albeit. Uh, speaking of guys that love picking dogs, John, you like any uh, You like any of uh, Jared Gooden in this spot, or do you, th do you think that Stolze rolls here? I like – I don't really know what Jared Gooden's team is doing, throwing him into a fight on three days' notice when he is 0-2 in the UFC, to be completely honest. Uh, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me, especially – given that he's had some cardio issues in the past, you know, to throw him in there on that short notice is a bit of a concern. But, like, Gooden, to me, is a bit of an enigma because coming into the UFC, I was like, this guy's not really UFC caliber. I bet Joe Ban, like, very confidently against him. And while Joe Ban did win that fight, <clears throat> Gooden actually impressed me there, and he gave him a lot more difficulties than I thought he would. You know, he landed 100 significant strikes in that fight, which for this weight class is quite good output. Um but then he comes out in the next fight, and he does a good job keeping the fight standing, but he makes Abubakar look like an elite striker on the feet. And I'm like, this is – it's it's just – it's hard for me to make sense of the guy that gave Joban issues standing and then was losing minutes standing to Abubakar. And I'm like, well, which which guy is it? You know, Clint touched on it. He's young, and that's true, and he should be improving. Um, I think, in theory, this isn't a horrible matchup for him. I do think Stolze is a sharper striker and probably a more well-rounded fighter. 
But, you know, Gooden has the tools to keep the standing. And if it's standing, you know, he can keep a high pace. And he does hit very hard. And so at welterweight, it's like plus 170 for a guy that can push a pace and also has serious KO power seems a bit extreme. I'm not playing it just because, you know, like I said, we've seen Gooden slow a good bit in the past. And on short notice, that's a pretty big concern. But I do think, like, Stolze looked good against Ramazan Amiv, which was also on short notice. But where he looked good, in particular in the stand-up, like, if we're being honest, Amiv is not the best striker in the world. Um, I actually give a lot more credence to the strength of schedule that Gooden's had in his career. I mean, you look at some of the guys he's lost to regionally, like Matt Graves, you know, Bruno Oliveira. You know, he's not losing to bad fighters. You know, he's going out there and beating – you know, anybody who's suboptimal. And I'm not saying Stolze is that, but I think Stolze's got a lot to prove. I do think the line is probably a bit wide. Um, if you got the plus 200, I might take a stab. But, you know, the short notice nature of it just is a concern for me. So I'm going to pick Stolze, but I don't think you can bet him here. Yeah, James, I'm kind of surprised at the amount of love, at least on the betting line here for Stolze. I believe he opened up closer to minus 130 and he's gotten pushed all the way to minus 195. I don't really understand it, right? Like the Stolze doesn't do much to really blow my hair back and to think that he deserves to be this big of a favorite against Gooden. But then again, I don't feel uh, I, that confident about the Gooden side either, especially on short notice. How do you see this matchup going down? Yeah, I think we kind of feel the same on this one. It seems like everyone feels pretty similar i think maybe the line <clears throat> is obviously predicated on good and coming in on three or four days notice as well right even though he looked good on the scales made weight pretty easily um so i'm sure he's been training and stuff but you know when your fighters come in on three four days notice it's it, it you know the line usually a lot of times it reflects that people just blind bet the other guy a lot of the time uh that's not going to be me i'm not going to be laying the money i do think the line is probably a little bit off I can't really get a good read on Gooden, kind of similar to what John's saying, to be honest. Again, like I, I can't really get too much of a good read on him, maybe because we don't have that much UFC tape of him, recent recent tape in general. But, you know, Abu Bakr almost knocked him out on the feet, you know, like that's not a good look. I don't like to see that. Coming into that fight, I was thinking, all right, Abu Bakr via decision, he's going to be able to get a takedown, he's going to be able to grind him out. He better not be on the feet with Gooden because Gooden could knock him out. And then the guy just 15 minutes just like outclasses him on the feet. I'm like, what's going on, right? So I was pretty shocked that that happened. Bizarre. To be yeah, very bizarre. And he almost stopped him on the feet, right? He, he wobbled him badly. Um, yeah, man. I mean, I, I guess there's value on Jared Gooden. I don't really see this being like... Look, put it this way, I don't see Nicholas Stoltzy going out there and just doing what he wants to Jared Gooden. I don't see him dominating in any realm. I don't think he's going to dominate the striking. I don't think he's going to dominate the grappling. So I think it's going to be a fairly competitive fight. I definitely lean Nicholas Stoltzy because I think he can just do a little bit more, be a little bit more busy. He's obviously been training for a fight, you know, in a camp, whereas Gooden hasn't been. Um, yeah, man, I don't have too much to say about this fight. I'll go with Nicholas Stoltzy. But I won't go with Nicholas Stoltz in minus 210, minus 220. If you have to bet it, bet Jared Gooden. But I'm not betting Jared Gooden, who got almost knocked out by Abu Bakr last fight, who's coming in on three days' notice. I'm not doing it. So if he gets the plus 200, like John said, then I probably will do it, right? But at the moment, I'm not doing it. I hear you. I hear you. All right. Let's move this train along. We got three fights left for you guys. Next up, we got Gloria DePaula coming up against Cheyenne Baez. In terms of the odds, we got minus 165 for Cheyenne and plus 145 for Gloria DePaula. Clint, let's kick it off with you, brother. Who do you like in this matchup between these two cont contender series alum who fell flat in their UFC debuts? Nobody. 
<laughs> this i mean we you were talking about how did how did that fight get on the main card how is this fight on the main card this fight is god awful man i don't like it i i am not a buys believer i am absolutely not into her and her whole output here she's a decent striker she likes to make it dirty, grapple people up against the fence. She's taking on a, a Muay Thai classic striker in Gloria De Paula. Neither of these women have 10 fights worth of you know experience here. I don't fathom how Cheyenne buys is minus 200 here. I really think that the public perception of Jinyu Fry is so low that the fact that Gloria De Paula lost to Jinyu Fry, I think that's why we're getting this number. And I think that's a bit of a recency bias issue. I don't believe that... Uh, I, I think this fight is extremely close. Gloria DePaolo is going to be taller. She's longer. She's going to be the better striker. I know a lot of people scoff at that because she lost to Jinyu Fray, but the fact of the matter is she lost to Jinyu Fray via grappling, not via striking. So people are kind of mixing those two things up, I think. I think this fight is going to be very close. I think it's going to be very competitive. Cheyenne buys maybe she can grind on Gloria to Paula the way that Jin Yu Fry did, but I don't think she'll be quite as successful at it as everybody thinks because Jin Yu Fry is a tank and she gets on top of people, has heavy top control. Baez is a little bit smaller. She's thinner. She's more lengthy and light. And I, I think that that's going to create opportunities for Gloria DePaula to actually work a little bit of a get-up game. And you know after the last loss she took, she's going to have worked on her grappling. She's going to have worked on her get-up game. You kind of got to expect improvements from both women. You can't see much worse debuts from either one. So I'm expecting improvements on both sides. Dogger pass. I'll take the chick that's got the four inch reach advantage. I'll take the chick that's got the two inch height advantage. And man, it just, I think this one's going to get, I, this might be a sleeper for fight of the night because really if these two are pissed off and they decide to go to war in the clinch, they could just bang this thing out for 15 minutes. This one actually might turn up to be one of the more exciting fights of the card, but I think it's going to be close. I do think it'll be a split decision. So for that reason, I'm probably not going to put my money on it, but I'd be very, very excited to watch Gloria DePaula land a clinch, clinch knee and KO Cheyenne buys. That would be fun. Jesus, Clint does not like. I'll follow you home, girl. But uh, uh, John, how do you feel about this matchup? Well, first of all, we all know why this is on the main card. Let's be honest. I don't think it Duh. needs to be said. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think Shia Bias is going to take care of business pretty easily. To be honest with you, um, I, I get it, and I, I do kind of agree with Clint. It's like, yeah, they both have under ten fights. You know, that's worrisome, and like, I don't really hold the Fry fight against Gloria DePaula. Like, pretty much. I don't hold any fight against a debutante where they fight someone who's got triple the experience, who has a grappling edge. It's really hard to do that. You know, a lot of times we get excited about these young prospects and just ignore, you know, what experience really means, especially people who have been fighting at this level. What I do hold against Larry DePaula is if you go back less than two years ago, we're fighting with Isabella De Padua. I don't rate De Padua at all. You know, we saw her get out grappled by Ariane Lipsky. You really have nothing for her. And De Padua was a small girl and she was closing distance like crazy and lighting her up, you know, Basically did whatever she wanted to Paula, dominated that fight and won it. And like you go and it's like, oh, maybe DePaula made improvements. You know, she beat Macias on contender series. If Macias is not <laughs> that girl was never sniffing the UFC, even if she won that fight. Like, let's be honest here. And so that tells me really nothing. Um, and so we get Baze here, and Baze, I actually it's weird because she looks so bad against Ruiz. Mm -hmm. It's like 
very easy to say, well, maybe she doesn't have a grappling edge. I just don't really think she was well prepared for that fight and in that position. Now, why she wasn't prepared for kind of a day one jiu-jitsu position, I don't really know. Um, that's kind of hard to explain. But I, I do think in watching the tape, you know, look, the striking, I think, technically is somewhat even, but Bayes is so much more aggressive and willing to bite down, go forward, and unload. And, like, I saw what DePadua did to her, and I think Bayes is much, much better as a striker than DePadua is. And so I favor Bayes on the feet. I obviously favor her in the clinch. And I think the reality is, you know, Bayes doesn't wrestle a ton, but she's not horrible when she wants to, especially for WMA at the lower level. And I kind of think she can probably put Gloria down whenever she wants. And we saw basically no ability to get off her back against Fry. You know, you look at when Fry fought Loma Luke Boonmi, you know, Luke Boonmi has a lot of holes grappling and was able to work up with not much problem against Fry. DePaul got stuck on her back for nine minutes in that fight. Um, yeah, I, I I hate to feel like to make such like a passionate case about a, a WMA favorite in her second fight where they're both 0-1, but it's like, I just think Baez is a lot more skilled. I, I haven't seen anything from DePaul to make me think she's ready for this level. Loma would eat both of these oh. women's lunch and then oh, beat up their course. boyfriends. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but this ain't Loma. <laughs> this ain't Loma. Uh, James, how do you feel about this matchup? Do you have the feelings like Clint, where he just wants to completely pass in this spot, or do you feel as strongly as uh, John does on one side? Yeah, I have to say, man, I'm going to agree with Clint on this fight because I just feel like the. Every take I've seen, and I watched, shout out to my man Z, I watched his podcast earlier, like on and off, and everyone's coming on there like, Baez is going to do this, Baez is going to do that. Man, I don't understand like the super, super confident. Yeah, I think I saw it. That was yeah. you. Yeah, I was the first guy. That was, continue. <laughs> that was a but the other two, but, but in fairness, the other two guys did the same thing, but continue. Yeah, they did, right? It's all a blur. All I see is this buyer's love, buyer's love. And I'm going to look real stupid because, by the way, I'm not saying De uh, Gloria DePaul is going to win or anything. But what I am saying is that I don't know how you can be super confident on buyers at this price, right? It's not like a pick'em, right? It's at this price. If it was a pick'em, look, basically, how I break this down is that I can't get past minus 150 buyers. I can't get past 60%, right? These girls are so fucking inexperienced. It's ridiculous. There was no fight IQ from buyers last fight. Forget about the head and arm throw. Everyone wants to talk about, um, okay, she's not going to get head and arm throw this fight, so completely throw the fight out. No, 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 no. Nothing to do with the head and arm throw. It's to do with the fight IQ, right? In fight, right? It's not the, the the head and arm throw. It's staying away from the head and arm throw. Distance, just a different game plan in fight. It's the fight IQ, right? It's not the specific move that's going to not get done on her this time. Look, I feel like Baez is 60%, so I think she's got the volume upside, the aggression, like John said. But if you go back and watch that the Padua fight against the Paula, she wasn't fighting with the same aggression Baze does. It's more, it's a different aggression. Baze is more of that striking aggression, like she will pick you apart, try and throw heavy strikes, right? The Padua, a lot of the time, was really, really um, grinding her up against the cage. She was biting down. She made it really, really ugly. I don't think Baze makes things especially ugly. So I do. Because that wasn't a that wasn't a good look that fight. I must admit that the Pedro fight wasn't a good look. But I don't think that Baze is going to be able to you know implement the exact same game plan. I don't think she'll want to make it as ugly. Um, I, look, I feel like the striking's fairly even. I do give the aggression and the output, the volume on Baez's side. But I do think that if someone told me, okay, this is going to go 15 minutes, no takedown, striking fight. I mean, that's a fairly competitive fight in my opinion, right? So if I believe that, 
then we have to go to, is there going to be grappling in this fight? I haven't really seen Baya shoot takedowns. I don't know if I'm watching the wrong fights, but she's only had like seven fights. I don't really see her um, grappling uh, consistently. I don't know if John wants to interject there. Was you going to say something? I thought, I, thought, I thought you was going to say you have seen a, a fight where she has proactively wrestled. I've seen her take someone – oh, proactively? No. I've seen her take people down from the clinch a couple times. But, yeah, nothing yeah. like where she's diving on legs six to ten times. No. Right. So, like, that. yeah. So, when we talk about the grappling, are you going to trust buyers to, to get takedowns here? I can't trust her, right? Just in general, she has, like, not a lot of fights. I can't trust her to get the grappling going. So, I think it's going to be a fairly close fight. Look, if she does get the grappling going, she will cover that price tag, right? But I just can't trust her to do that. I don't think her fight SQ is very good. And yeah, look, 60% for me, um, Cheyenne Bays. But I think if you want to bet it, I think there's, I think you probably go Gloria via decision at like plus 270 or something, which is a pretty wide price. But yeah, man, good luck everyone on base because it seems everyone's on her. So legitimately good luck, but I can't get behind it at the price tag. Yeah, no, I, I clearly love Blaze in this spot, as you guys obviously saw, if you guys were watching the, the Z's uh, show earlier today as well. But yeah, uh, I'm going to pretty much echo the sentiments that John uh, has here. I do think the advantage that DePaula has here is probably being the better technical striker. But in my opinion, being a better technical striker means jack shit when you're getting your back pushed up against the cage and kind of having the fight brought to you, which is where I think that Shea and Bez is going gonna, is, is gonna to do here. Will uh, Gloria land a significant enough of a strike to record a knockdown or a potential knockout? There's a small possibility but i don't think that it's uh anything that's gonna you know scare me away from taking the shot on base in this spot i do think that she will pursue not pursue takedowns to the extent of a habib or something like that but i do think that if she finds those openings she's gonna get those takedowns and from everything that i've seen on tape in terms of depala with grappling and, and any type of situation where she's put in that she looks like a, uh, almost a fish off of her back it does not look good in terms of the fact that she's like striking off of her back and not really looking to work to get back to her feet not to mention the the, the lack of takedown defense is very concerning as well so yeah it's it, 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 like it, like James, like you were talking about, if you want to go out there and say that this is going to be a, a 50 minute striking match, it, it's kind of unfair to do, right? Like I I do believe that buyers will go out there and look to to mix in the clinch and the grappling and something like that. Like we can say she has low fight IQ because of her last fight, but again, that fight is like the anomaly of all anomalies. Like when do we ever see a fight ever go that specific way? And yeah, it sucks that she always found herself in those positions. And again, I don't think that she's going to find herself in low fight IQ positions to you know, drop the fight in this spot. Like, what kind of low fight IQ position can she put in herself that DePaul is going to take advantage of? It would be distant striking. If she is com completely okay with staying on the outside and just trading strike for strike with DePaula. I think that is the way that DePaula wins this fight. But I find that hard to believe given what we've seen in terms of the style that, uh, uh, what's her face, uh, uh, Baze brings with, with the striking. Go ahead, James. Oh, you said what type of positions would would she be in with a low fight IQ? What I mean by low fight IQ is not going not going for takedowns when it seems like the path would be there. I don't think you can trust buyers to go for the takedowns. That's all I was going to say. Mm -hmm. Clint, you had the same thing to add? I do, and I, I think uh, I think James hit it on the head. What we see from Cheyenne Buys is she does most of her work from the clinch. 
And that's something I'm really glad he brought up because I kind of left myself a, a note here that I missed until I was reading through while you guys were breaking it down from your angle. She does most of her work out of the clinch. And honestly, man, that's a spot where Gloria DePaula is really strong. I wasn't joking when I said she's classic Muay Thai. She has a lot of clinch work. She's got big, powerful knees, big, strong elbows. So if Baez is going to rely on the clinch to get the takedown, if she's not shooting double legs from range or chaining single legs together, I think she's going to struggle in those clinch positions. And she may not even get the takedowns that people are counting on her getting because that's a spot where Gloria does pretty well. So if Baez isn't going to be a pure grappler here, I think there's a decent chance that DePaula is able to keep this thing standing and work her on the feet. One thing I was saying that I was flipping on over to you, John. Uh, I do like the fact that she went kind of back to her roots for this fight too, right? She originally started off as an extreme couture girl. She's back over there with Eric Nixick and those guys. We know we can almost trust those guys to follow a solid game plan, craft a game plan that they know that they can take advantage of their opponent to the to the fullest extent uh, and, and capitalize on it. I think that base should be able to do with that in this spot. John, you were going to say, and you are muted just so you know. Yeah, I mean, we could go round and round forever on it, but the last thing I will say, I do take Clint's point about the clinch, but beating up Pauline Macias in the clinch is somewhat meaningless to me. That's all That's all I'm saying. It's like a girl who has nowhere, no business near that fight and who was way undersized compared to her. Um, it was maybe Bias she'll do that. To, <laughs> I mean, maybe she'll do that to Baze, but like I, I, I just – you know, you're talking about doing that against someone at such a low level and then doing it at a different level. You may, you may, but there's also a chance you won't, you know? Okay. I will say this also in terms of the level of experience and the amount of experience these girls actually have. You got Bays with 11 amateur fights, which is something you do not see in this day and age, right? More often than not, people take about three or four amateur fights and they jump on over to the professional scene. But she got some solid years in as an amateur. I think she spent about four or five years as an amateur fighting decent competition, especially on the amateur scene. Jalen Robinson, which she ended up losing to. Uh, there was a couple other spots as well. Uh, Vanessa Demopoulos, she got an elbow injury in that fight uh, and then turned pro after that. And then even even Kyra Batera, another girl, hardcore MMA fans would know, not the highest level of skill, but still a very experienced opponent as well. John, I believe you're going to add one more thing, brother. Yeah, last thing. Cheyenne is super hot. Let's just all get behind her here. Let's just. <laughs> she has that psycho bitch thing about her, but yeah, just look over that a little bit. I'm in for it. We should be fine. All right. Let's, I'm let's just not glad we had a disagreement. <laughs> James, go ahead. Don't you think it just shows what type of card this is if we're getting the most passionate? About Gloria <laughs> DePaula versus Cheyenne Bay. Yeah. That's nuts. Uh, sorry, I do have one last thing that I want to, to say about this. There is there is a reason Cheyenne Baez went into that Montserrat Ruiz fight as such a big favorite as she was. And now people are just completely throwing that to the side because she got arm and headlock for 15 fucking minutes. I think that we have that recency bias thing where, you know, we did it with Derek Minner last week. A lot of people did it where they just picked Derek Minner thinking that he's all of a sudden a new fighter going out there having 15 minutes of cardio and being able to decide decision guys falls flat on his face clear round tree going out there and battering eric anders for 15 minutes and all of a sudden he's a new fighter yep. nope ian kotalaba is like fuck no so it, this is kind of like the reverse re recency bias where like people, people are just completely writing off uh a bias just because of that last fight i think that she's gonna right her wrongs this time around again i feel a little bit stronger than stronger than it that i should as it seems but i do feel like uh come fight night i i, I should be on the right side i hope i'm on the right side because <laughs> i look like a complete dumbass going out there and putting some money I mean, on uh champ in the spot 
this entire card, man. Like I all know. of us are more. Con- we've got we're we're you know podcasters and YouTubers that bet on <laughs> fights. This yeah. is the offering this week. I know. Most of these fights would be the past fights on any other card, yeah. but we gotta bet on something because we're degenerates, or we gotta make content, or we're trying to put some jingle in our pockets. Like it just you know every single one of these fights would be a pass <laughs> if there was a stronger offering. Let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, ahead, legitimately, John. the best five fights on this card got canceled. Like if you just yeah, go and look at right. it, like Perez Askarov, Chavez Choi, Jones Lawrence, Alvin Kopolov, all of the Dawkins Abdurakimov, all of these were on here and got canceled. So they yeah, tried. They tried. A little bit. They tried a little bit. <laughs> shout, shout out to Z. I believe he was the one that said that like if UFC was still going by naming events, this would be UFC Vegas 33 red flag. And I completely agree with it and understand with it because that is you know absolutely the narrative. But uh, we are still trying to find some money-making uh, opportunities for you guys this weekend. And we got two fights left. So let's get right the fuck into it. Uh, we do have uh, the Coleman event here between Kyung Ho Kong and Hani Yaya. Never thought I'd be seeing Coleman event and those guys side by side but here we are uh in terms of odds we got minus uh it seems like we're getting closer to pick odds now which i find interesting but you can still get kong around minus 130 at certain spots and plus 110 to return on a honey uh i believe john john you're going to be the one kicking this one off for us how do you feel about this matchup brother yeah i like going honestly like going into research for it i was like pretty certain i was going to have a huge play on kong here and then like the more i looked the less i kind of liked about it i still sort of lean him but i didn't end up betting it like it, it, it's weird because like you know for a guy who is known you know for being a wrestler mr perfect Kongo Kong has faced surprisingly little like offensive grappling against him. You know, there there just isn't really a lot of footage there um, of him. You know, basically having to be on his back and get up. You know, the best I could find was, you know, Brandon Davis got his back at one point and he had to fight out of that. But like, not really anybody really putting him down and him having to really show either, you know, a solid technical get up game or, you know, a real sprawl. You know, Hamos took him down twice and put him in an awkward position with the heel hook, but just nothing really to get kind of a good gauge of what his defensive grappling is like. And, like, on the other hand, it's like, yeah, he's a very good offensive grappler, but we kind of know how this song and dance goes at this point, right? When you have these wrestlers against these jiu-jitsu guys, like someone like Hanayaya, who's as good as it gets when it comes to jiu-jitsu. The odds are he's not going to go into his guard. I think you can make a reasonable case if you were coaching him that he should. Like, I have this pet peeve that I think very good grapplers should not get subbed from bottom, even against elite submission grapplers. Like, if you know what you're – like, defending submissions from bottom is all about just knowing the right defense. And most elite offensive grapplers do understand that, but they don't really want to go in there. Um So I don't expect him to go in there. And so if that's the case, it's like, one, can he stop Yaha, Yaya's – grappling maybe like it's possible he's much bigger uh, he's probably stronger than than ronnie is but i don't know that for a fact and let's say yaya gets two takedowns well there's not really any data on not much data on kang you know really having to defend on his back and nothing against someone like yaya so it's like i don't know everybody was really confident about two years ago that enrique barzola was going to roll honey and then Honey went out there and beat his ass for two rounds before he gassed out in that fight. Um, and so, like, I don't know. Could that happen? It could. It, even standing, it's like, you know, Honey, like, whatever you say, like, I don't think he's a great striker, but the dude bites the fucking mouthpiece and goes and just throws nonstop and comes forward at you. And 
Kang, I think Kang actually technically is actually pretty good. Like he's got a decent jab. When he does decide to throw in combination, his striking's pretty tight. But like he's another one of these guys who will just kind of get stuck in stuck in these weird tempos where he just won't let his hands go. Like, you know, we lost the homo. You know, he was winning the stand-up with Hamos when he would let his hands go, but he just didn't enough against Ricardo Hamos of all people. Um, and then, you know, we saw the same thing happen against Brandon Davis, I think outlanded him badly at distance in that fight. And so it's like I look at fights like that, it's like, yes, I do think if you were to put them in front of like judges and they weren't fighting each other and say, we're gonna judge who has the higher technical acumen on the feet, yes, they would all say Kyung Hyo Kog has that, no question. But like, that's not really how this works, right? You know, you have to let your hands go to win fights, and Hani is gonna fight the mouthpiece. And so then you even move to the cardio dynamic. It's like, yes, I give Kang a slight edge in cardio, but again, he's slowed down in the not too distant future, in the not too distant past, right? So against like, I know Hani slowed down badly against Barzola, but it's like. Kang's not the guy to step on the gas in the first place. Is he going to if he's totally gassed out? Not really. And so I'm sitting in this weird spot where it's like, yeah, you know, I kind of see the justification for the line just because I, I do think if Kang can keep the fight standing, he likely, likely looks like a, a slight favorite. But it's just there's so many unknown variables in this fight. It's impossible for me to make a bet on Kang. Um and on the Yaya side, I think I'd want plus 150 because at that point it kind of like covers, you know, Yaya's got like a range of outcomes that's anywhere from like minus 125 to like plus 150, I think. You know, Kang is not going to go and outdistance him on rounds like badly, but also, you know, depending on how he's defensively grappling is the difference between Kang being a favorite and Ronnie being a favorite. So I don't really have any strongly at the current line. I guess my pick will be Kang. Um, like I said, if it got to like plus one fifty, I'd be in for Hani though. I like it. I like it. Uh, James, how do you feel about this matchup? Yeah, I'm gonna go with Hani Yaya here. I know he's thirty six years old, getting a little bit, getting a little bit old now. But man, we see him go out there and do his thing. Last time out against Ray Rodriguez, you know, he was able to get a takedown in round one, dominate. Able to get a takedown in round two, dominate. Finish the fight before that, not dominate, but he. He clearly won round one and two against Enrique Barzola. Good fighter. Fight before that, Ricky Simone. Yeah, Ricky Simone's a good wrestler. Was able to stop the takedowns and just beat him up. But I mean, you know, and then before that, he wins his like, like four fights in a row. So look, I think Kung, you know, he's going to be larger here. He's probably going to be able to defend some takedowns. But the thing about Kung's fights, if you go and watch his fights, like they almost all end up in the clinch. They almost all end up in the grappling realm for whatever reason. And I think that reason is because he's just not a very good striker. Look, I know a lot of people say Hani Yaya is not a good striker. I don't think Kang's a good striker at all. A lot of people say Hani Yaya hasn't got good cardio. Kang hasn't got good cardio either. You know, if you want to beat Hani Yaya, you need to defend the takedowns and have good cardio. I don't think Kang's going to defend the takedowns. And even if he does, I think he's going to initiate the grappling at some point. And then he hasn't got good cardio either. So I don't think he's going to outpace um, Hanayaya. So that means that at some point in this fight, and at a lot of points, in my opinion, it's going to be in the grappling realm. I favor Hanayaya in the grappling realm a lot more than Kang. You know, look, he might be able to take Hanayaya down. And I do think Kang's a decent offensive grappler. I mean, he definitely will be able to take him down. But I think Hanayaya could probably get a sweep there. Look, I... If, if I'm thinking that this fight is definitely going to be in the grappling realm for a lot of the fight, like eight, nine minutes, then I kind of have to take Hanayaya here, right? Obviously, there's other variables that go into it, 
But without talking about this fight for 30 minutes, which is what I can do when I talk about fights, I often go off on rants and stuff. To keep it short, I just think that a lot of the fights are going to be contested in the grappling realm, and I'm favoring Hane Yaya to at least win two of them three rounds. I don't necessarily think he's going to get a sub, which is what he does to a lot of people. I do think Kang can probably be responsible defensively. I've seen him go against decent grapplers, not Hane Yaya level, but he's able to stay safe and stuff. But I think Hane Yaya... It, is going to be able to do enough to bank a couple of rounds. And I think he's I think he's going to win this fight, even at the ripe old age of 36. I think he's got a last hurrah in him. Kang's been off for two years. Hanayaya has been fighting consistently at this UFC level. Kang's coming off a layoff. I think Yaya is going to get it done, man. John, you want to add? Yeah, just real quick. Um, something I hadn't really thought of, really, before Luker started talking. I don't know why it made me think of it, but... You know, Enrique Barzola actually held up against um, Movzar Evloev in the grappling and didn't really hold up by Hani was fresh, which I just think is kind of an interesting consideration that I hadn't really considered. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. You guys are right in terms of the fact that Kang has definitely been off for a while. I believe his last fight was actually December of 2019. And in that amount of time, we've seen Hani Yaya step inside the cage twice, obviously giving up that draw to um, Mr. Enrique Barzola. And then obviously the next fight where he was able to submit Ray Rodriguez, who let's be honest, doesn't even really deserve to be inside the UFC. So good win for Yaya there to at least get a W uh, on his record at this point in his career. But Kang is one of those guys that I actually used to be pretty high on. But then when he goes in there and actually has some of these uh, fights and makes them a lot more competitive than they should be, then you're like, fuck, like, oh, where is this talent that we, we were so uh, believing in that this guy could actually go out there and get some solid wins and possibly crack the top 10 in this division? There is a, a huge question mark in terms of what he's going to look like after coming off this this layoff now as well. And it's a very dangerous fight with Yaya. Say what you want about his age. Say what you want about him looking like your grandfather. But the guy's still going to go out there and make a good account of himself, especially in the grappling and jiu-jitsu realms. Um, I do think that Kang will be the stronger fighter in this situation. Uh, I do think that he is defensively sound enough with his grappling that he should be able to stay out of submissions. Um, I always like to take the chance whenever there's a Kang Kong fight that comes up Make sure you guys go back and watch that fight with Michinori Tanaka. That was probably one of the craziest fights that I've ever seen in terms of grappling exchanges, reversals, back and forth. It was just a phenomenal fight. Uh, again, I I'd bring it up if Tanaka was fighting in the UFC still, but he's not. But that that that's pretty much the case there. Uh, in regards to to this fight specifically, yeah, I think it does kind of work out as binary as Yaya will be strong early, Kong could be strong late, maybe not super strong to the point where he's actually having utter dominance and finishes Yaya or something like that. But I think that is absolutely a possibility as well. Um, I do favor Kang a little bit, though. I, I will say this about Yaya striking. Um, Kang striking, obviously not the greatest. Either. I think he has a slight advantage there. But the issue with Yaya striking is the fact that he just throws so much into his shots that he doesn't care about being taken down. Like, he's just throwing with reckless abandon. He doesn't mind if he's, like, you know, falling over his shots or falls onto the ground after those shots and his opponents fall him to the ground because that's where he wants to be. He wants to hit a reversal. He wants to hit a submission off of his back. But I think that Kang is going to be more than willing to go down to the mat with him. I believe in some interviews during the week, he's actually said that I don't mind you know grappling up with uh yaya in the spot and a lot of people might take that as uh you know oh fuck you know let me automatically bet on yaya but like i don't think that it's uh, to the point that uh kang is actually going to find himself in a position or a submission in this spot i think both guys their win condition or their most likely win condition is to win a decision with yaya obviously taking the first two and kang possibly taking the second two i've even seen the 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 draw narrative thrown out there which i don't mind either right like i i could definitely see a spot where yaya is sucking wind at the end of the fight uh, uh kang maybe having that top position getting that control time landing enough damage from on top and having little to no resistance from yaya from the bottom possible 10-8 in that spot too uh I, I i do think 
I feel like I think highly of Kang uh, more so than other people. So I do give him a little bit more credence to actually win this fight uh, in the second and third rounds. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't want to take anything away from him. I've backed him in numerous fights in the past. The guy has a good skill set when he goes out there and has a decisive advantage over his opponents. And people kind of just, you know, tear away from him or tear him down just due to his age and, you know, his rickety body at times. But you got to still give him credence for that jujitsu that he's able to put on his opponents. I just think he's going to struggle to have ultimate success here against Yaya in this spot. I do think that Yaya, uh, the first round, will be competitive. I do think that uh, James is correct in the fact that both guys have a bit of cardio issues, but I do think that Yaya just shows the wear just so much more worse than than guy than than Kang will be showing in this spot, which would ultimately favor Kang, especially with you know uh, how he's going to be looking. The the optics of it will obviously look really good to the judges as well, and then obviously I expect him to be spending the majority of that third round on top. But let's see what he looks like off this two-year layoff, right? That's another angle of this fight that we definitely need to consider. From what I've hearing, obviously he was serving his military uh, duties that he needed to do, but apparently he was actually like with the Marines and all that type of shit, doing like like legit army shit rather than uh, a couple of these other Korean fighters who were just taking desk jobs just to kind of stay active or you know to, to stay out of too much danger or something like that. So uh, I I like Kang here. Uh, I legitimately thought he was going to be a lock of the night play for me when initially this fight was announced. But once I start to dig into the fight, I start to back away a little bit more. Um, I understand the line. I don't understand the complete line movement, though. Like, if the Yaya comes off and rings off as the favorite as the, when the fight goes off, I'd be surprised, to be honest. And it would almost force my hand to make a bet on Kang in this spot. But, uh, yeah, I think Kang roughly around minus 130, minus 135 uh, is correct. I like him in this spot. I'm going to take him to win by decision. I might sprinkle that round three prop. I might just fucking do it because you guys know I like me some round three props. And when you got Yaya in there who looks close to death in his third rounds, I got to take a little bit of a, a, a stab there. Again, Kang, not the greatest cardio machine himself, but I do think that he'll have more left in the gas tank once this fight hits the third round, and he should be able to dish out enough damage from on top uh, to, yeah, hopefully win the next, last two rounds or maybe get a finish in the third round. All right, uh, Clint, bring us home with this uh, Coleman event. How do you feel about this fight? I'm a little bummed that I didn't pull the trigger on Yaya earlier in the week. I, I kind of broke this down, and I was like, man, why is Ronnie Yaya a bit of an underdog here? And I thought money was going to come in on Kang. I was hoping I'd get around that plus 150 mark with Ronnie Yaya. And the line's been beat down to evens now at this point, and I'm, I'm a little bit upset about that because I like Ronnie Yaya. I like Yaya as a dog here in this spot. What I know is that Ronnie Yaya can sub any man at this weight class, and that includes Kengo Kang, in my opinion, especially in the first round. Kang's best path to victory, like you guys all broke down, is grappling, which means he's going to have to engage in Ronnie Yaya's game plan. If he wants to stick and move and try and pump that jab out there, he does have a good jab, but he doesn't have much else after that. Like That's kind of my problem with Kang, is that once you get beyond the jab, there's just not a lot there. And everyone's like, oh, Kung Ho Kang, he's so much younger than Ronnie Yaya. He's only three years younger than Ronnie Yaya, man. And people talk about how old and rickety and broken Yaya is. Bro, I'm bald and I'm 33 years old. <laughs> Ronnie Yaya has gray hair. He's 36. He's fine. We saw Damian Maya, a guy with the exact same game plan as Ronnie Yaya, fight until he was 43. Like The dude is not going anywhere, and he's got a skill set that's going to beat people that that aren't ready to rise in the UFC. Kyung Ho Kang, the majority of his wins have come by submission. You're not submitting Ronnie Yaya. Like, that's just not going to happen. And then, if you look at his record, most of his UFC wins have come by split decision. Like, this guy could very easily be a 500 fighter or booted from the organization. Hell, I bet against him his last two fights. I thought Ping Long Wu beat him. I thought that Brandon Davis beat him. Like, I, I am not high on Kyung Ho Kang whatsoever and the love that he's getting after another long layoff i'm just like 
he's been questionable his whole career, and now everyone thinks he's going to roll through the proven Ronnie Yaya. I just I'm on the I'm Dogger Pass here. I know I sound like I'm like super sold here. I haven't bet this one either. Like I said, I missed the good number, so I don't think I'm going to take Ronnie Yaya at plus 100 at this point since I'm not getting the number I had in my head. I wanted plus plus 130 or better, something like that. So I don't think I'm going to get there. But my gut says that Ronnie Yaya wins this one. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, this is going to be Battle of the Gas Tanks. You said you like round three. I like round three, too. I wouldn't be shocked if Kyung Ho Kang gasses out and Ronnie Yaya takes advantage of it because you don't slow down against this man. If you slow down against Ronnie Yaya, he's going to take your neck. All right. I like it. I like it. Good polarizing opinions on both sides here. I can't wait to see how it plays out. And that brings us right to our main event. Pretty interesting middleweight scrap that we have between Uriah Hall coming in around that plus 170 mark and minus 195 on Sean Strickland. And I do want to remind you guys, the 300 live viewers that we do have in here, make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe, and then obviously hit uh, the Twitter links for these guys in the description below and give them a follow because I'm sure they've kept you entertained for close to two hours in this spot. Yes, as Clint is gesturing, please do hit that bottom spot there. All right, uh, main event time. Like I said, Uriah Hall versus Sean Strickland. Very intriguing matchup. Very interested to hear everybody's opinion opinions on it and we're going to start off with my guy james james how do you feel about this matchup between these two middleweights yeah first fight on the card that is actually somewhat decent uh uriah hall sean strickland is surging at the moment you know two wins he's got a lot of hype behind him uh, a few funny things come out on twitter recently as well with the sparring footage and when he's driving in his car talking a load of bollocks and stuff <laughs> i guess it gets a lot of uh, hype and stuff so shout out to sean um I'll start off by saying that I kind of think Uriah Hall is KO or bust in this fight. I don't think it's a crazy hot take saying that. I don't think it's a crazy hot take saying Ryan uh, Uriah Hall is kind of KO or bust in a lot of his fights, really. If you go back and watch his tape, oftentimes he's losing the fight until he's not losing the fight, right? Which obviously shows his ability to finish the fight, but it also shows his ability to kind of let the minute slip away from him. Against someone like Sean Strickland, who does pump out a lot of volume, who will get in your face, will throw out the jab consistently, um, it's probably not a good... Well, it's probably a very good indicator to say that Sean Strickland, he is probably going to win this fight until he gets knocked out, right? So that's why I'm saying it's KO or bust. I do think Sean Strickland's probably going to give Uriah Hall a decent a chance to knock him out. You know, Sean kind of walks in straight lines. He doesn't really have great movement although i will say in a brendan allen fight he showed a very good ability to fight going backwards because brendan allen was pressuring most of that fight and then obviously in the jocko fight he showed an ability to fight going forwards although i think he should have cut off the cage a lot better against jocko than he did he was kind of just following him around in a circle right if he was able to cut him off i think he probably could have got a finish there so I think, obviously, he's going to be the aggressor in this fight. Um, but I think he's going to give Uriah Hall chances to, you know, chances to finish him. He has that boxing style where he kind of just walks you down, hands up. It's not really too much head movement in his style. I think the grappling path is there for him. But obviously, his fight IQ is almost non-existent at this point because he just doesn't do the things that he should do. I mean, we all go back to that Jack Marshman fight. Third round yes. come, Jack Marshman... The only chance of him winning is, you know, a knockout. And the guy's pointing to the ground with 15 seconds left in the fight, telling Jack Marshman, I will give you a chance to win. Let's stand and bang, which is, you know, all right, it's good for entertainment, but it's not good for putting your money on it. Because if you've got your money on Sean and he's doing that, you're not going to be entertained, you know. So I don't really, 
I don't really give Sean a big chance or I don't know what you would call it, but a big chance of taking Uriah down, which is, you know, probably his best path there. Um, look, I think Sean's going to win this fight. I think he's going to be able to touch the chin of Uriah Hall quite often. I think he'll probably break Uriah Hall late uh, round three, round four. I wouldn't be super surprised in the fight going to decision. I know a lot of people will probably be surprised at me saying that, but I wouldn't be extremely surprised. But look, I'm going to go, you know, to wrap it up, I'll go with Sean Strickland to win in round three, round four. But I will say that, you know, if you are taking a shot on Uriah Hall, I'd say just play his uh, inside the distance line or KO line, plus 300. I think there's going to be ample opportunity for that to hit, man. I really do. I think Sean's going to take a couple of whacks. Now, is his chin going to be able to hold up? Maybe. I think it will, but plus 300, take a little flyer on it. I don't hate it. Uh, yeah, that, that's my prediction. Sean in round three. Yeah, I think we might share all the same sentiments for this fight where it's pretty much Sean Strickland's going to be winning this fight up until the point Uriah Hall KOs him or he finds the finish himself or this fight goes the full 25 minutes. Uh, Sean Strickland was definitely in the lead uh, or, or in the running to be my lock of the night play for this weekend, but it's just so hard to like put money on a guy that's willing to engage with his opponent in the in the area that's going to give them the best chance of winning and beating him, right? Like, I don't want to be sitting on my money for 25 minutes to be like, Phew. Uriah Hall is explosive. We've seen him come back and you know from the depths of hell and and finish some guys. Even though it was Bevan Lewis and you know that that crazy uh, kick that he or knee, I believe they landed on Gegard Mousasi several years ago. But still, like he has that power. Like it almost reminds me of Derek Lewis, right? You can beat them in almost any aspect of the game, but they're always going to have that like fight-ending knockout ability. Obviously, this fight's down at middleweight compared to heavyweight, but I still believe that Uriah Hall is definitely one of the heaviest hitters in this division. And Sean Strickland, you know, great striker. Don't get me wrong but at certain times it seems like he has striking defense issues and i don't like that here against a guy that has speed and explosiveness like uriah hall so the way that i'd approach the fight i've seen a couple of people throw out there uh that that prop i don't have access to it myself but the round four round five decision prop around plus 145 i think that's a great spot for sean strickland here i think he could break uh uriah hall late like james was saying uh personally my only action on this fight i do have strickland on just a, a lottery degen parlay but i do also have a couple of sprinkles on on these props here i got uh plus uh, 1,000 for Sean Strickland in round three, plus 1,600 for Strickland in round four, and plus 2,000 for Strickland in round five. I think if he just cumulatively puts that damage together, it's eventually going to break Uriah Hall and get him out of there. Uh, and then for Hall, obviously, just take the KO line. Plus 300 is a great line for that being kind of his only path to victory, right? I'd be surprised if he goes out there and wins minutes. Very, very surprised if he goes out there and wins minutes. Um, you know, if Strickland wins anything less than four rounds of this fight and it goes to a decision, I'd be surprised. I think a lot of people would be surprised in this spot. So, yeah, if you're taking Hall, take the KO line. You know what I mean? Don't leave any money on the table. That's the best way to win this fight. But if you like Strickland, you know, Strickland decision or late finish is probably the way to go. I like Strickland decision as an ultimate prediction, but I have to take those stabs on those crazy round props because you guys know I love me some round props. Clint, what do you what do you like in this fight uh, between Uriah Hall and Sean Strickland? Get out of my head, Locke. Get out <laughs> of my head. So you guys hit the nail on the head with this one. And again, I think this is one where just most of the betting predictors are going to see this fight relatively the same way. But what I've got for you is a slightly different slice on this thing. I've been a Uriah Hall backer. I've been a guy who's been leading the charge, being like, this guy is not as bad as people you know, want to say he is when he was coming off that skid where he was like one and four in his last five, fighting for his job, about to lose it, and then he gets Bayvon Lewis. And I took him in that spot 
spot as a big plus 200 underdog, and a lot of people called me an idiot for doing so. He was losing that fight until he came back and got a miraculous third-round knockout. So I lined up and I backed him against Antonio Carlos Jr. his next time out. That was a split decision win. That very easily could have gone to ACJ with that third round being the way that it was. It was close. It was hairy. And then I backed him very proudly against Anderson Silva because a five-round main event against a busted old man who doesn't have anything left in the tank, you knew he was eventually going to find that bomb. And he does, but it took him until the fourth round to do it. And he was arguably losing to Anderson Silva until that point. So he has come from the dead in all three of those fights that he came back and got the wins in. And then Chris Wyman knocks himself out. Like, let's be real. Uriah Hall is riding high off his TKO victory over Chris Wyman. Get the fuck out of here. Like, he didn't do a damn thing. He checked one leg kick, and Wyman took himself out of that fight. So... Ryan, I mean, sorry, Uriah just needs to like chill a bit on that because he didn't do a damn thing in that fight to get that win. So I think there's a, we said it before, recency bias. There's a ton of recency bias right now on Uriah Hall. He's on a four fight win streak, three of those four by finish and everyone's dog money. I got dog money on Uriah Hall and they go back to the narrative they used on Anderson Silva. It's a five round main event. He's got all day to catch that, to catch that glorious shot. Well, what Sean Strickland is going to do that none of these guys did is get in his face. You can't spin when you've got a guy in boxing range. There's no spinning heel kick from there. So Uriah Hall is going to have to start quick if he wants to be in this fight. Uriah Hall doesn't start quick. Sean Strickland is going to be in his face until he eats a giant bomb of some kind of a counter and drops dead, or he's just going to break Uriah Hall. And people forget when Hall actually fights aggressive offensive power strikers, he's got four knockout losses. He's been knocked out several times by that exact type of person. Bevon Lewis, much of a knockout guy? Eh, not really. He's not even in the UFC anymore. ACJ, knockout guy? No, jujitsu guy. Henderson Silva, he was a knockout guy, but it was 20 years ago. Chris Wyman, eh, is he really a knockout guy anymore either? No, he was dying in the third round against Omari Akhmedov. Like, he's had a really coasty run here. And honestly, Uriah Hall is one of the biggest public dogs I've seen in a long time. I see nothing but love for Uriah Hall at this plus money this weekend. I was going to lay the hammer, the absolute hammer on Sean Strickland this weekend. And then the little light dinged on in my head. And you know what, guys? The under is a better play. I got the under four and a half, and I'm going to go ahead and lay that minus 145 on it because I don't think Uriah Hall can go 15 minutes with Sean Strickland in his face. The amount of pressure that we saw Sean Strickland put on in his last fight is going to cave a guy like Uriah Hall in. We haven't seen him do it recently because he hasn't really had the opportunity to, but Uriah Hall looks for that door. When you break this guy mentally, and you can, he looks for a way out, and that's exactly the kind of pressure cooker Sean Strickland is going to put him under. And then it's saving grace if Uriah Hall gets the knockout. If for whatever reason Sean Strickland is not able to keep the pressure up and he backs off for just a second, he will catch an elbow. He will catch a spinning heel kick. And I don't think there's any man alive who can take the spinning shit that Uriah Hall throws out there. So I think the insurance on the under four and a half is totally live here. I believe that both you guys are completely accurate. I've got round three for Sean Strickland predicted as the way I think this fight is going to end. Locke, I'm probably going to sprinkle the three, four, and five props the same way you did because those lines are stupid and awesome, and I love those big plus numbers. But I did lay 2.9 units to win two on the under four and a half at minus 145. 
I don't know who the hell you're following or who the hell you're talking to because literally the only person I see on Uriah Hall is Zeke. Like, I, I, everybody else I've been talking to or, or at least seeing on my timelines, everybody seems to be on Strickland. But uh, might, maybe might I need to clean up that timeline. <laughs> Maybe I got a lot of casual follow. I mean, I do. Absolutely. I have, you know, I've got a lot of casual followers. Most of us YouTubers do, but that's what, you know, when I picked Sean Strickland, everything I got in return was not nah, bro. Uriah Hall. That it's like, maybe it's a sharp versus square divide. You know what I mean? Like maybe that's just the cappers are all taking Strickland and then most of the casual Joes are taking Hall. I don't know, but I've Shots seen a lot of love for Hall. He's throwing shots at you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Z's probably watching this anyway. Uh, John, bring Z us knows home. I love him though. <laughs> John, bring us on home, brother. How do you feel about this middleweight? Yeah, like I, I simultaneously love and hate Sean Strickland. Like I think he's fucking hilarious. Like all the stuff he's done, all his videos, really funny. Even the weigh-ins, like yeah, the weigh-ins yeah. was so weird. He he does seem like a bit of a dick, but like the Orlando Sanchez thing, you know. Orlando Sanchez maybe a little dirty, but the, the reaction a bit, <laughs> a bit over the top, but. And his fighting style, look, it's obviously fun. He's got good hands. But I do sort of, when I say I hate him, like what Luger was saying I think is on point. Like his hands are nice. Like he's got a nice jab. He's a good combo striker. But he's also the kind of guy that will take a couple shots to give it back harder. And that that's something that can work, you know, down on like flyweight, bantamweight, like someone like Figueredo, you know, where the guys just don't hit as hard. You're running – you're on a very short time frame to live when you're doing that at 185 pounds. At some point, you're going to get nuked to get your head taken off. Will that be here? I don't really know. Like, I do subscribe to like the same view you guys do. Uh, it's not impossible for Uriah Hall to win minutes. Like, obviously, he could always just maybe Strickland is a little scared by the power. It's a bit more low volume, and Hall wins, lands some big shots to win. I don't really see that. I think in a, in a decision, Hall um, Strickland is pretty clear, like pretty significant favorite. I think I saw DraftKings Sportsbook offers um, decision only prop, and it's like minus three fifty Strickland. And I even think that might be a little short. I actually think that's a decent way to play this, to be honest. Um, but ultimately, I actually like Clint's way of approaching this because the bottom line is, you look at Hall's entire career. He obviously is a nuclear hitter. Like even just looking at the stats, you know, he's got a 2.6% distance strike knockdown rate. Like that's a heavyweight level number. You know, the guy hits really, really hard. And, you know, as we all touched on, Strickland's there to be hit, man. He stands pretty upright and he's willing to take a shot to give it back. Uh, and on the other hand, you look at pretty much any time in his career, someone's really stepped on the gas against Hall. And he has a very, very strong tendency of collapsing in fights. I don't know if it's a mental thing, but we've seen it happen over and over and over. All the way back from when he fought Chris Weidman when he was three and zero to you know as recently as the Paulo Costa fight. Obviously, Costa is a huge hitter, but the bottom line is Hall doesn't really like people getting in his face and hitting him. And so I do think, unless Strickland approaches this fight markedly different to has how he has every other since he came back, and like let's be honest, Marshman's a pretty big hitter. You know he's not good, but he does hit hard and Strickland was not scared off by the power at all. He was like, fuck it, like, let's go. And so I do think, you know, we can reasonably expect Strickland to bring that type of fight. And if he does, it's very hard for me to not see his fight finishing in the first three rounds, to be honest. Um, with all of that said, you know, the smartest way to approach is like Luke could have said, just fucking wrestle him. You know, Strickland actually is a decent grappler. Like it's, he never uses it, but like what he does, he's a decent wrestler and right? he's a decent, you know, he has a decent top game. But I don't expect him to use it. I think he's going to come out here and do what he always does. And if he does that, I think this fight finishing early is a very, very strong outcome. Um, I think, you know, you're probably looking at 
I probably put it at like 70% to end inside the distance. Um, and most of that is pretty front loaded to be honest. So I think any kind of doesn't start round five, doesn't start round four. Isn't horrible here. I can't get on Strickland himself straight personally just because, like I said, I think we're taught I love Strickland and I think he has the minute winning skills to compete with a lot of the division, even in the top 10. But I do think he's on borrowed time to an extent. Like at some point, he's going to sleep. You know, he is he is durable, obviously, but you know, can only take you so far in this division. You know, the guys just hit too hard. But yeah, I mean, Strickland should win this fight. Uh, I, you could, I think you could even make a case for the line being like, short and like maybe Strickland being value here. I, it's just not something I really want, really want to get involved with. Like lay the minus two ten on Strickland and him die in round two, you know, like something like that. But I, I do think a finish is a good bet here. You want to play ends by KO, cool. You want to play doesn't start round four, doesn't start round five. I see it. I, that's kind of how I'm looking to play it, to be honest. Um, Strickland's the side, but. Not really trying to lay minus two twenty against the guy that hits like Hall and what's likely to be a kickboxing match in the pocket. I like that you said that there's potential value here on Strickland, even though he's up in that minus two hundred range. I wish there was more confidence that we can put into the fact that he's not going to fight a stupid game plan. Like if yeah. you can actually go out there and guarantee me that he's not going to just just stand in front of Uriah Hall, <laughs> yeah. uh, then I'd be comfortable playing that minus two hundred. It will definitely look like value, but. That's fucking strong, Strickland. That's exactly what he's gonna do. Well, and like, he I could bet still win against... it as a good clip. Like he still wins at a good clip, regardless. Like I bet him against Marshman, largely not because I thought he would grab him, but I'm like he's got a minus eight hundred path if he tries to wrestle him here. And look, he still looked like value, but at the end of the day, it's like you decided to give this bum his yeah. only path to victory for fifteen minutes instead of just you know going out there and winning the fight in your first fight back from a serious injury, you know. Yeah, he I, I was the, on him he heavy there the too. Sub in round one, he probably yeah. gets the sub in round yeah. one. Yeah, I remember the subline being something crazy too, because not a lot of people thought that it was live. But like, you know, he definitely has that path to victory if he took it, but decided not to. All right, that's a wrap on the UFC Vegas 33 breakdowns. Two and a half hours deep, but we had to get into it as deep as we could so we can extract as much information as we could. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. But on the back end here. One of my favorite segments, or a lot of the viewers' favorite segments, is we want to give everybody's lock of the night play or the most confident play on the card. Personally, for myself, might regret saying this, but I do like Shay and Baez. She's the one that I like the most on this card. Out of everything that we have on the card, I'm not trusting Byron Braverina. I'm not trusting Rafa Garcia. I'm trusting Shay and Baez. So hopefully she comes through for you. But at minus 175, I really like that spot, considering the advantage, uh, advantages I believe she's going to have, especially if, you, if she goes out there and tries to take the grappling route in this spot. So I got Shay and Baez minus 175 for four and a half units. Clint, what is your lock of the night play? Man, earlier in the week, I would have said it was Rafa Garcia, and I know I came in pretty hot back in Rafa here, but the more I think about it, I think this main event under four and a half is probably my lock of the night. I think that's a much better spot. I think these guys just, that Sean forces a firefight, and then one of these guys ends up on their shield. That's exactly how I see this thing going, and uh, believe it or not, my guy uh, Fox down here had had some valid points to bring to the table against uh, Rafa <laughs> Garcia, and the size of Chris Grootsmacher had me kind of raise my eyebrow just a little bit, so I'll say under four and a half in the main event, that's going to be my lock. I will say you guys are really selling me on the under four and a half. I'm, I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, John, who do you got uh, or what do you like as uh, one of your most confident spots on uh, tomorrow's card? Yeah, I think it's probably Ryan Benoit, to be honest with you. Um, like I said, I just played it while we were on the show, but I was pretty much waiting for the line to get to like minus 125. But I mean, the rest of my plays are underdogs on this card. And I really do think Benoit has Adeshev covered wherever this fight goes. Like, the only way he loses is if he just accepts 
basically losing a low volume decision. So yeah, he's probably my favorite spot from a betting perspective. I like it. And I believe James, you had already let people know that uh, Benoit was your strongest play. Is that what you're going to be calling your most confident play on this card? Yeah, that is my most confident play. <clears throat> I'll, I'll give you another one, which I gave out because obviously John's already said that. Uh, I think Bob Brown Barbarina to win inside the distance. You know, I, I, I just think it's going to happen. You know, like it's plus 100 as well. Plus money is pretty good. I think I think at some point he's going to wear him down. I don't think it's going to be a one shot. I just think I, I don't think he can keep him down for 15 minutes. I think at some point Brian's going to overwhelm him and stop him. I like it. I like it. Shout out to the 330 live viewers that we currently have. We reached that 100 like mark, hoping that we could have gotten closer to 200, considering we got 300 of you motherfuckers in here. But shout out to everybody that actually took out time on this Friday evening to spend it with us. I'm going to swing it around the horn one more time so everybody can plug everything that they have. You guys probably are already following them, but I'm sure they got some other stuff to share as well. Clint, where can everybody find you, and what would you like to plug, my guy? Hey, man, you can find me over at Pub Sports Radio every single Monday. We go live. I uh, break down the entire card from start to finish. I usually have pretty awesome guests. And actually, two out of the three other panelists here tonight have been on my show. And the next one is being targeted down the road. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get the entire club and sub on the podcast at some point. So find me over there at DieHardMMAPod is the Twitter handle. You can find it in the bottom left-hand corner here. And uh, just good luck to everybody because – this card is one you need to hold on to your butts for because it's uh, it's going to get hairy. It's going to get sketchy, and I will be trying to take a stab at another 60 to 1 parlay. So good luck, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go, Clint. I will preface before I get over to John here. Get used to that face. I'm going to keep it as cryptic as that. Get used to John's face. John, what do you got to what do you got to plug my guy? Uh, yeah, I am over on Twitter at MMA Fox right there. You can see the handle. Uh, every Wednesday night, my uh, me and two other guys run the uh, Club and Sub podcast Wednesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. We go through the entire card from a betting perspective. You can find that on YouTube at the Club and Sub podcast or just watch it live from my Twitter feed. But yeah, that's what we do every Wednesday. Check it out, guys. Yeah, please do check out the Club and Sub podcast. I love those guys over there. After I do my predictions and my videos and my breakdowns, I usually go over there to check it for kind of on the same page on some of those spots. So it's a, a real relief to see some of you guys on buys just as much as I was on buys as well. Uh, James, what would you like to plug, my guy? Yeah, first of all, man, thanks for having me on. Thanks to John and Clint as well. It was a good, good synergy between us. A bit of a shit card, but I feel like we made it quite fun. So thanks for having me on. Excited to watch your... Um, Pog, oh, you're having a live chat with Z tomorrow, is that right? Yeah, so we're doing a, a fight day live chat at 4 p.m. where we're just going to be taking all questions and comments for an hour. And then at 6 p.m., we're going to go live and do a fight companion. So I'm really looking forward to that. In studio as well, so that'll be fun. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be going up to his place. So at least we're in person. I can touch him and stuff. And we're not on fucking two different streams as well. <laughs> yeah, make, make sure you tell him Clint said he was square for betting on your rival. I will. I will. I'll be sure. Once the main event starts, I'll be sure to relay that message. I'm going to hit a stream. Sorry, sorry, Clint, go ahead. I just I gotta tune in. I gotta see Z's face. I gotta gotta see the reaction. <laughs> John, you were saying? They do a blunt on stream. Sorry? People? You're gonna smoke a blunt on stream for the Ooh, people? Maybe maybe not on stream, but uh, I will be incredibly baked for that fucking stream. Let's just put it that way. Uh James, you got everything you wanna plug? Yep. Anything yeah, else? Yeah, man, just about follow about? me Twitter, Lucrative MMA, you know, Instagram. I'm active on there as well, Lucrative MMA. Uh that's it, man. We're going to try and smash through that 100-unit year. That'll be solid if we can get that. we still got four months to go. So, man, good luck to everyone on their bets on Bellator, UFC, all of that, and hopefully we can cash again. 
absolutely shout out to james probably one of the sharpest guys in 2021 right now to be able to crack that close to the 100 unit mark in uh august eight months into the year is absolutely crazy especially considering the variance and craziness that we've had this year james has been able to stay consistent and keep up those results make sure you guys go check his stuff out once again all the twitter descriptions uh or links are in the descriptions below so make sure you guys go follow them on behalf of myself clint john and james shout out to everybody that show uh showed up for the uh for the stream tonight good luck on your bets tomorrow we got bellator as well so good luck on those as well i'm sure you guys are gonna be throwing together some jockey parlays usually they hit for bellator so good luck um but yeah good luck on your bets and i'll see you guys tomorrow for the fight day live chat at 4 p.m eastern as well as the fight companion on z stream at 6 p.m eastern war cheyenne buys